My name is Josh Ober. Uh, I am uh, here at Princeton University uh, in the Department of Classics, uh, and uh, I currently am the acting director of the university's Center for Human Values. Uh, I'd like to welcome you uh, to the symposium uh, on democracy in post-occupation Iraq. Uh, my welcome uh, is on behalf of the University Center for Human Values, the program in Near Eastern Studies, the School of Architecture, and the Dayton Peace Accords Project. All of these are the co-sponsors uh, of this seminar. Uh, and I'd like to, uh, before we start, uh, thank my co-organizers um, of this, uh, Guy Nordenson of the Princeton School of Architecture, uh, Mike Duran uh, of Princeton's Department of Near Eastern Studies, Bruce Hitchner, uh, a fellow uh, here at the Center for Human Values this year, and the director of the Dayton Peace Accords Project. Uh, and uh, I'd also like to uh, offer special thanks uh, to Catherine Sievet, uh, who is a practicing architect in New York City uh, and who teaches at both the Harvard Graduate School of Design and the Cooper Union uh, in New York. She has made a deck of cards representing the missing artifacts from the Baghdad Museum. Uh, the uh, cards um, uh, are being, as we speak, uh, taped uh, to the windows in the hallway to your left outside the auditorium. And so in the intermission, uh, uh, I uh, urge you to um, see the other deck of cards, um, uh, which uh, commemorate uh, the missing uh, antiquities. Well, um, among the publicly announced goals of the recently completed American military operation in Iraq was regime change, that is, uh, overthrowing a tyranny and replacing it with democracy. The war indeed has been won, and the tyrant uh, has been overthrown, and that certainly counts as an important success. Yet the American war effort will certainly have failed, and in very important ways, if after the occupation by British and American troops is over, if after the occupation, the Iraqi successor regime is non-democratic, if the post-occupation government is a dictatorship, no matter how benevolent, or an oligarchy ruling in the interests of a minority. If democracy does not emerge in Iraq, a very important promise on which the war policy was in part based will have been broken. So the stakes are very high. The United States has committed itself through the repeated promises and assertions of its highest officials to the goal of a democratic Iraq. But what does the phrase democratic Iraq really mean? This seminar is meant to pose that question, and it seeks to answer that question by looking beyond the day-to-day -day excitement of breaking news, beyond the soundbite of the week, beyond the headline-catching squabbles between the Pentagon and the State Department, indeed beyond party politics and tactical maneuvering, to the ultimate question of what the goal of all of this really is, to repeat what do we mean when we say we seek a democratic Iraq? What obstacles stand in the way of that goal? What conditions would be necessary to achieve it? 
Well, if democracy is defined negatively as neither dictatorship nor oligarchy, then what are democracy's irreducible positive attributes? We, the organizers, are convinced that Iraqi democracy must be characterized at a minimum by self-governance by the people of Iraq in their own national interest and in accord with freedom, equality, and human dignity. But what sort of constitutional order and institutions of government actually count as democratic? Does a true political democracy also require a democratic civil society? How does a democratic society relate the structure of political and civil institutions to architecture, to the physical built environment in which and through which people live their lives day by day? In what ways would a democratic Iraq resemble familiar Western democracies? And in what may might it differ while still remaining genuinely democratic? Well, it's only after we have a sense of what we might idealistically and realistically hope for in terms of a self-governing democratic Iraq that we can begin to think seriously about how the conditions of the recent war and the current foreign occupation might relate to the goal of making possible a robustly democratic society in this Middle Eastern nation. The common conviction of the organizers was that these are all extremely important issues and questions and extremely difficult ones, and that coming up with good answers would require drawing on expertise across a variety of fields, from political philosophy to international diplomacy to Middle Eastern studies to comparative literature to architecture, design, and civil engineering. We've been very lucky in being able to persuade on short notice and in the midst of an international situation that changes day by day or hour by hour, a remarkable group of scholars and practitioners to think together about these problems. Organizing a symposium under these conditions is a challenging enterprise. A couple of people whose names are on the program, Rand Rahim Frank and Paul Williams, were called away at the last minute, but in the meantime, other outstanding people have joined our enterprise. Our hope is that by coming together to share what we know across disciplinary lines, coming together in a kind of seminar in which we can educate one another, we can come up with better answers and end, end the day better educated, more thoughtful about how to confront the challenge posed by the very worthy goal of a democratic Iraq. Our opening session today focuses on values. Uh, first, we must define core democratic ideals and practices, and then we need to ask how democracy might work in a Muslim context and what sort of challenges and opportunities might be involved with developing democracy in a specifically Iraqi context. Each of our speakers will offer a fairly concise statement of about 15 minutes or so. Um, uh, we'll then have a uh, brief break uh, for coffee, and we'll return for general discussion. Uh, our first speaker uh, will be Stephen Wall, uh, who is uh, a professor at, uh, of philosophy at Kansas State University and currently uh, an LSR fellowship, a, a Lawrence S. Rockefeller fellow uh, here at the University Center for Human Values. 
Professor Wall's uh, primary areas of scholarship uh, are political philosophy and the philosophy of law. He is the author of Liberalism, Perfectionism, and Restraint, and he's currently working on a book on democratic perfectionism. He'll be followed uh, uh, in the uh, presentation by Yitzhak Nakash, uh, who is professor of Middle Eastern Studies um, at Brandeis University, and the director of the program is in Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies. He uh, is uh, a, a, an expert in uh, various parts of the Arab world, but especially on Sudan and Iraq. Among his publications are a very important book, The Shi'is of Iraq, um, 1994, Princeton Press, also translated into Arabic uh, by Dar al-Mada in Syria. Currently, uh, Professor Nakash is working on a book that seeks to elucidate the interplay between group and national identities among Shi'i communities in the Arab world in the 20th century. Uh, next will be uh, Stephen Simon, uh, currently at the RAND Corporation. Before joining RAND, uh, Simon was assistant director uh, of the International Institute for Strategic Studies uh, and senior fellow in uh, U.S. security studies. Uh, and before that, uh, he served on the National Security Council staff at the White House as senior director for transnational uh, threats. Among his other uh, publications, he is the co-author of The Age of Sacred Terror, uh, 2002, and editor of Iraq at the Crossroads, State and Society in the Shadow of Regime Change. That's just out uh, from Oxford University Press. Uh, and finally, um, uh, Michael Duran, um, who, as I've mentioned, uh, was a co-organizer of this conference um, and teaches in Near Eastern Studies uh, here at Princeton uh, and is also an adjunct senior fellow on the Council of Foreign Relations in New York. Uh, he is the author of a book on the first Arab-Israeli war entitled Pan-Arabism before Nasser, Egyptian Power Politics and the Palestinian Question, and is currently working on a book on uh, uh, Israel in the Arab Civil War. Um, uh, so without further ado, uh, I'd like to call to the podium um, uh, Stephen Wall. Thank you. It's, um, it's good to be here. Um, as Josh mentioned, I uh, study political philosophy. I'm not a, an expert on Iraq, and I'm not an expert on the politics of that region of the world. So my uh, remarks will be somewhat abstract, as philosophers typically are when they talk. Uh, but I'll try my best to uh, relate this to the Iraqi context. Uh, the topic of this conference is democracy for post-occupation Iraq. Most of the discussion of this topic in the media assumes that democracy for Iraq would be a good thing. I'm not so sure. A lot depends on what we mean by democracy. In American political discourse, democracy is a general term of approval, but it doesn't have a clear meaning. In my remarks, I'll attempt to clarify democracy 
understood as a political and philosophical ideal. I will distinguish this ideal from other ideals and values that it's commonly associated with. Once we get the democratic ideal in sharper focus, it will, it will be seen to be a very demanding ideal. It's so demanding that we may think that it's unrealistic to expect Iraq to approximate it any time in the near future. I said that democracy is a political ideal, but what does this mean? Philosophers and political scientists apply the term democracy to both societies and governments. A democratic society is often identified with a society that treats its members as moral equals. Thus, democratic societies are often contrasted with hierarchical societies in which some members are taken to have interests that are more important than others. A racist society, for example, cannot be a democratic society. It's widely believed that only democratic societies can be well-ordered. This is likely not true. Some writers, most notably John Rawls, have introduced the concept or the idea of a decent society. A decent society is not necessarily a democratic society, but it can be well-ordered. A decent society is non-aggressive toward other societies, maintains law and order within its borders, provides for the basic needs of its members, and respects human rights. A decent society so understood need not be committed to equality. The society might be set up so the interest of some of its members, say men, matter more than others, say women. But it must ensure that no member is treated too badly. When Rawls discussed the idea of a decent society, he had Muslim countries foremost in his mind. With respect to Iraq, we might take it to be a more realistic goal, at least for now, that it become a decent society rather than, it, rather than that it become a democratic society. Decency, not democracy, might be an idea that better fits the country's political culture and its historical traditions. I said a moment ago that democracy can refer to a society or to a government. And speaking of democratic societies and decent societies, I've not said anything about the type of government they must have. For what it is worth, I believe it to be true that neither a democratic society nor a decent society must have a democratic government. We can imagine a democratic society, that is, a society committed to treating its members as equals, that is governed by a non-democratic government. Perhaps, given the circumstances of the society, the non-democratic government is the best means for ensuring that all the members of the society are treated as equals. But while this is imaginable, it is unlikely. Once a society is committed to treating its citizens as equals, then there will be pressure for it to establish a democratic form of government. The same is not true of decent societies. There is much less reason to think that they must have a democratic form of government. Some writers have suggested that only societies with a democratic form of government can be counted on to respect human rights. But the evidence for this claim is hardly conclusive. Hong Kong, after all, did a decent job of respecting human rights, but it didn't have a democratic government. And, of course, there can be societies with democratic governments that systematically violate human rights. So if our goal for Iraq is the establishment of a decent society, then we may not need to be committed to democracy as a political ideal for that country, at least not in the near term. I still have not said what democracy is understood as a political ideal. I suggest that we think of it as an ideal that applies to institutions that distribute political power and standing in society. As such, it is an ideal that applies to the constitutional structure of a society. Put very succinctly, the ideal holds that political power and standing should be distributed equally among the adult members of the society. 
Before I try to make it clearer exactly what this means, which is not at all an easy task and not one I'll be able to complete here adequately, uh, it will be helpful to distinguish the ideal of democracy from what I shall call the instrumentalist thesis. The instrumentalist thesis is the claim that the constitutional structure of a society should be designed so as to produce the best political outcomes over time. The idea behind the thesis is simple. Take any political outcome that is valued, whether it be the protection of human rights, the establishment of social equality, or the promotion of economic growth, then the best constitutional structure will be the one that best produces over time the valued political outcome for the society in question. Democracy, understood as a form of government, is often recommended because it is thought to follow from the instrumentalist thesis. Still, if one is committed to the instrumentalist thesis, then one is not really committed to democracy as a political ideal. One's commitment to democracy is, as it were, an accident. One would abandon one's commitment to democratic government if it could be shown that some other form of government would do a better job of producing the political outcomes that one values. So if we embrace democracy as a political ideal, then we will not be accidental Democrats. We will think that a democratic constitutional structure is valuable for its own sake, not just as a device for producing valued political outcomes. Now, the democratic ideal is, as I've said, a demanding ideal. It would not, at least not necessarily, be satisfied by a society that has a constitutional structure that establishes free and fair competitive elections, gives every adult citizen a vote, and then counts the votes equally in a majority rule decision procedure. Such a constitutional structure establishes what's sometimes called elite democracy. Elite democracies are compatible with great inequalities in political power and standing. In the United States, for example, the current interest in campaign finance reform is motivated by the thought that under current law, some individuals and groups have unequal political power and influence. This is rightly seen to be inconsistent with democracy understood as a political ideal. In saying this, I don't mean to deny that elite democracy has much to recommend it. It clearly does. Free competitive elections are good at preventing the establishment of centralized tyranny. They also require the they also require the protection of certain rights, such as freedom of speech and assembly, that are valuable in themselves. But elite democracy is at best only a shadow of democracy understood as a political ideal. I suspect that support for elite democracy has more to do with the instrumentalist thesis than it does with a commitment to the democratic ideal. If one were really committed to democracy as a political ideal, then one could not rest content with elite democracy. We still don't have a sharp formulation of democracy understood as a political ideal. It's tempting to say that this, uh, this ideal requires that all adult citizens have equal political influence. On this view, equality of votes and majority rule are a move in the right direction, but they are not sufficient. We need to, we need to ensure, in addition, that each adult citizen exercises an equal amount of political influence. However, a moment's reflection reveals that this tempting thought cannot stand up to scrutiny. Surely there are some types of inequalities in political influence that are not objectionable. Suppose I'm more motivated than you are to participate in political discussion. This will likely mean that I will exercise greater political influence than you. But there's nothing objectionable from a democratic standpoint about this. Or suppose that I have greater skill than you in making rational arguments or rhetorically effective speeches then once again, I will, I will likely exercise greater political influence than you, 
And once again, there's nothing objectionable about this from a democratic standpoint. Taking these points into account, we can formulate a better statement of the democratic ideal. This holds that each adult citizen should have a fair opportunity to exercise equal political influence. The notion of fair opportunity in this formulation is indexed to levels of motivation and political skill. So, very roughly, we can say that a society realizes the democratic ideal if it has a constitutional structure that ensures that adult citizens with the same motivation to participate in politics and the same level of political skill have an equal opportunity to exercise political influence. Such a constitutional structure would permit some inequalities in political influence, but these all would be traced back to differences in the motivation and skill of different citizens. This formulation of the democratic ideal could be refined further. Indeed, it might be thought that democracy requires not just that all have a fair opportunity to exercise equal political influence, but also that all or most citizens actually take advantage of this opportunity. Democracy, it may be said, requires actual rule by the people, not merely the opportunity for the people to rule. But perhaps I've said enough already to convey how demanding the democratic ideal is. Very few, if any, actual societies have fully realized it. Of course, even very demanding ideals can provide guidance. They can give us a target to aim at in designing and reforming political institutions. However, when we consider the present situation of Iraq, there are surely more pressing concerns than attempting to move closer to this ideal. One such concern, as I mentioned earlier, is the establishment of a decent society. I've already said that a decent society need not be a democratic society and that it need not have a democratic form of government. But I did stipulate that a decent society must do a reasonably good job of providing for the basic needs of its members, and it must respect human rights. If the first and foremost objective in Iraq is to establish a decent society, then it might be argued we have reason to set up a limited form of democratic government in Iraq, a kind of elite democracy. We have reason to do so because this form of government is the best form of government for building and maintaining a decent society in Iraq. This, of course, is a complex empirical claim. I don't know whether it is true or not, um, nor do I know how to support it. Let me turn then to some other issues in democratic theory that might be relevant to the Iraqi situation. Thus far, I've spoken of democracy in terms of the constitutional structure that a society has in place. I've suggested that we can look at how the constitutional structure of a society distributes political standing and power to determine the degree to which it is democratic. However, it may be thought that it matters crucially how a constitutional structure gets established in the first place. That is, it may be thought that a constitutional structure cannot be democratic unless it arises from a democratic process. Democracy, on this view, must go all the way down. There is, to be sure, an air of paradox about this thought. It seems to imply that we need a democratic process in order to establish a democratic process. Whether or not there's a genuine paradox here, the idea that a constitutional structure can only be democratic if it is democratically created may motivate support for the idea that it's Iraqis, not the United States or the West or the UN, who have the right to decide what the new government will look like in Iraq. Those who fear the imperialism of the West often press this kind of claim. There is, I think, a good, me a good measure of confusion here. The claim that Iraqis, not outsiders, should decide on what the new government will look like has little to do with democracy and a lot to do with nationalism. For all we know, the Iraqi people might prefer a theocratic aristocracy 
to a secular democracy. This would hardly make the former, in any sense of the term, more democratic than the latter. Still, as everyone knows, perception matters in politics. For any new government in Iraq to be stable, it will likely need to be perceived by the Iraqi people as their government, not as a government imposed by outsiders. So even if we in the West could impose an ideal democratic constitutional structure on Iraq, it would likely not be a good idea to do so. This is not because the imposition of the structure would be undemocratic, but rather because the imposition would likely be seen as illegitimate, which in turn would threaten the stability of the new government. Or perhaps I should say that if we're going to impose a constitutional structure on Iraq, we should do our best to make it look like we're not doing what we're doing. (laughs) Let me conclude with just a few remarks about the relationship between liberalism and democracy. The West, it's often said, is committed to liberal democracy. But liberalism and democracy, while related, can come apart. Mind you, they cannot come completely apart. In describing the democratic ideal, I emphasize the equal distribution of political standing and power. But any democratic constitutional structure must safeguard certain liberal rights, such as freedom of speech and freedom of association. These rights are internal to democratic self-rule. But granting this point, it remains true that a democratic constitutional structure still can be illiberal. In other words, it's possible to have an illiberal democracy. Illiberal democracies lack a liberal constitution. They do not have the system of constitutional restraints on governmental power that's the hallmark of liberal democracy. Nor do they have a political culture that places a high value on toleration and on individual freedom. There's also some evidence to suggest that illiberal democracies are more likely than liberal democracies to be aggressive toward other societies. All of this suggests that illiberal democracies may not be too good at producing decent societies. The lesson to draw from this, I fear, is not a happy one. The effort to realize the democratic ideal in Iraq may get in the way of establishing a decent society in that country. Without a commitment to constitutional restraints, And without a political culture that's receptive to toleration and individual freedom, the effort to equalize the distribution of political power in that society may just empower its most illiberal elements. This is a real problem, but it doesn't show that democracy is not a valid political ideal for Iraq. After all, many valid political ideals are only conditionally valuable. They are valuable only given certain conditions. But this problem does suggest that the immediate focus should be on these other conditions. For post-occupation Iraq, then, I'm tempted to say decency first, liberal constitutionalism second, and democracy third. Thank you. Our second speaker is Professor Yitzhak Nakash. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Will the new Iraq become a democratic state? The answer is not an easy one, and it requires first a definition of democracy, as well as a short assessment of the record of democracy in the Arab world. Democracy is a set of rules and political institutions put in place to peacefully manage the various competing groups and conflicting interests within the state. If we accept that definition, it appears that on the whole, the Arab world has been inhospitable to democracy. 
This has become all the more clear after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Whereas during the last decade, parts of Eastern Europe and Latin America have begun adopting forms of democratic government, the Arab world has made no serious progress towards democratization. There have been several attempts to identify the causes for the failure of democracy in the Arab world. Some writers simply argue that there is a resistance to change that pervades Arab culture. Others put the blame on the colonial powers whose policies in the countries of the Fertile Crescent, the Persian Gulf, and North Africa are said to have blocked the development of genuine democratic institutions. The relation between Islam and democracy has received considerable attention. Here, the discussion usually focuses on the difficulty of reconciling Islamic moral order and political thought with Western secularism, modernity, and innovation. It is argued that in Islamic thought, authoritarian power has generally been considered the norm and democracy the exception. While there is no consensus regarding the causes for the failure of democracy, there seems to be a general agreement about the symptoms characterizing that failure. Accordingly, many writers point to the lack of government accountability, the absence of diversity and pluralism, the limits on freedom of expression, and disrespect for human rights in the Arab world. Social scientists also highlight the weakness of the middle class, as well as the absence of real national economy in most Arab countries, arguing that democracy as a mechanism for controlling expenditure does not exist. Although these explanations shed some light on the obstacles along the road to democracy in the Arab world, they do not entirely clarify the specific nature of the problem in Iraq. It seems to me that in Iraq it is both the state, as existed until a few weeks ago, as well as the current conditions in the country that can help explain some of the obstacles in the road towards democracy. Since the British creation of modern Iraq in 1921, a Sunni minority constituting some 17% of the population and based in central Iraq has held sway over a Shiite majority of some 60% spread in central and, uh, and southern Iraq, and over a Kurdish minority of about 20% in the north. The Sunnis felt entitled to rule Iraq, considering themselves the heirs of the Ottoman Empire. Their claim to rule has been backed by the preponderance of Sunnis over Shiites in the wider Arab world, and by the support of Arab Sunni leaders who have felt more comfortable with Sunni rule in Iraq. The policies of Western powers have bolstered Sunni rule in Iraq. 
especially the United States, which until recently viewed the Ba'ath regime as a counterweight against Shiite Iran and backed Saddam Hussein during his eight-year war with the Iranian Islamic Republic. All this, of course, has changed following the recent U.S.-led war against Iraq. Can U.S. presence in Iraq lead to democracy in the country? Democracy in the Western style is usually the end product of complex social processes. On some occasions, the agent pushing for democratization may be none other than the state itself, including its leader, as was the case in the former Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev. At a certain moment in history, a ruling elite which for a long time had exercised complete authoritarianism found itself compelled to loosen its grip on power and encourage a dramatic political change. On other occasions, democracy may be achieved after a struggle carried out by organized groups as demonstrated by solidarity movement under Lech Walesa in Poland. These conditions do not exist in Iraq today. What we have instead is a lot of destruction caused by the war, a power vacuum and a lack of security, as well as a dangerous degree of civil commotion in the country. In addition to these factors, there is no form of civil society right now that can act as the nucleus of an Iraqi democratic system. The success or failure of people in gaining democracy is often determined by the role played by civil organizations whose members are derived primarily from the middle class. The importance of the middle class lies in the resources it controls as well as in the degree to which it can push for democratic procedures. Since it's coming to power, the Ba'ath has wiped out all forms of civil organization not controlled directly by the party. The Iraqi middle class and the private sectors had no choice but to enter into a pact with the state, thereby becoming directly dependent upon it. Moreover, the Iraqi middle class has been reduced to bare subsistence after 12 years of sanctions beginning in 1990, followed by the recent war. Needless to say that there is no free market economy in Iraq today which often sustains thriving democratic systems. How might Iraq look like in the near future? The United States needs to reach out to the Shiite majority and take measures to ensure that the change of regime in Iraq will not expose the Sunni minority to Shiite revenge and tyranny. U.S. officials have begun the process of deba'athification, but they could retain many of the civilian technocrats 
formerly employed in the Iraqi state bureaucracy. Such a policy would signal to Iraqi Sunnis that the downfall of the Ba'ath regime was not intended to strip them of power, encouraging them to have a stake in a new Iraq. The United States needs to encourage Iraqis to form a representative government and develop a strong parliamentary system. To maintain the credibility of the government, ministerial posts should be filled by Iraqis who are respected within the country. Until such time as political parties have had time to form and Iraqis are ready to elect their national leader, it may be necessary to have a government that represents the entire communal makeup of Iraq according to an agreed formula. The parliament should serve as a major arena for public debate, and it should be capable of checking the executive's decisions. Seats should be distributed among Iraq's various social and ethnic groups in proportion with their size. Iraq's main communities are likely to develop religious and socio-cultural institutions that would operate on the principle of checks and balances. These institutions would not necessarily reinforce sectarian and ethnic divisions, but rather manage the competition among various groups within each community and reduce tension between Shiites, Sunnis, and Kurds. The question whether in the long run Iraq could move from a state governed by a confessional system into a democratic state based on individual representation will be determined primarily by the actions and wishes of Iraqis themselves. Iraqi Arabs, both Shiites and Sunnis, together form some 75% of Iraq's population. As the largest ethnic group, the Arabs would need to offer the Kurds a pact safeguarding their socio-political rights within a reunified Iraq. The 1970 Accord signed between Saddam Hussein and Mustafa Barzani, the great revered Kurdish leader, has been referred to over the years by Iraqi Arabs and Kurds as a basis for settling the Kurdish problem in Iraq. The Accord acknowledged the distinct national identity of the Kurds. It permitted the Kurds to develop special educational and cultural programs and recognized Kurdish alongside Arabic as an official language in areas where Kurds formed a majority. The Accord also promised the Kurds participation in the Iraqi government and predominance in the local administration. In return, for a, similar, for a similar offer backed by the United States and preferably also by the United Nations, the Kurds would have to forge new links with their Arab compatriots and undertake to resolve the Kurdish problem within Iraq. 
the task of rebuilding a democratic Iraq will be a challenging one, and it would involve tough risks. Down the road, there could be a backlash against the wish of the majority to bring decency and tolerance to Iraqi socio-political life. It would be the responsibility of the United States to assure Iraqis that their desire for an Iraq that serves all its people will prevail. I think I'll stop here. Thank you. Uh, our third speaker is Steve Simon. Thank you. I actually uh, have less of an argument to make than, um, than a series of observations about nation building. Maybe they're not even observations. Let's just call them crude generalizations. Um, uh, the first is that uh, this administration, that is the Bush administration, uh, has a utopian, even a revolutionary streak or mindset. Uh, it's actually quite astonishing. Um, the invasion of Iraq under these circumstances was a cosmic throw of the dice. And I use that phrase bearing in mind that I heard it first uh, from a Clinton administration official to describe uh, Camp David II, that for them that was a cosmic throw of the dice. Well, little did they know. It sort of reminds me of a game theory professor I had here at Princeton a very long time ago who used to say, the French think that life is a game. The British think that cricket is a game. Well, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, definitions of what constitutes a, a, a cosmic throw of the, of the dice uh, really uh, can differ, and for this administration it certainly means something uh, rather big. Um, now, uh, broadly speaking, uh, this this campaign, this revolutionary campaign uh, in the region tends to underestimate the significance of barriers to rapid change, political, demographic, environmental, economic, and so forth. Uh, these factors can't be wished away, um, as the administration appears to be doing. Um, uh, but that is a function of, of messianic zeal. I mean, the, the details get lost. Um, but they probably won't be lost for long. Now, uh, having said that, um, it doesn't mean that the U.S. Uh, can't create a democracy in Iraq or a pluralist government or uh, whatever kind of uh, sort of decent arrangement uh, one might conceive of that consists of a measure of broad political participation. Uh, and I say this for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, the one is that, uh, as Itzik has pointed out, uh, democratic transitions do occur. Um, now, 
mostly, uh, the, I mean, recent experience is mostly in the realm of Latin America and Eastern Europe, and there uh, the phenomenon has usually taken the form of a pacted transition. That's what uh, they're called by analysts. And uh, the pacted transition refers to the um, implicit pact uh, that is created in the course of these transformations between uh, reformers within authoritarian regimes who see the status quo as ultimately unsustainable and an outside opposition um, uh, who come to be seen uh, by the reformers within the regime as having non-revolutionary goals. And what happens in these pacted transitions is in a measure of trust slowly builds up, and uh, a transition uh, um, uh, in, the, in the best cases occurs at the end of these, uh, at, at the end of this process of trust building, and the success of the, uh, of, of the pact between the reformers and the opposition. Now, obviously, that's not happening, uh, uh, that hasn't happened in the Middle East. In fact, there are, there are, there's, there's no base uh, there's no empirical base to look at in the Middle East. There really is just Latin America and Eastern Europe. Now, um, what's so unusual about this case, of course, is that uh, there's been a decapitation. And there's not um, actually a big imperial uh, – empir- <laughs> that was a funny slip uh, – <laughs> empirical uh, base for, for looking at, at such cases. Uh, Argentina comes to mind. Um, the uh, regime in Argentina was re- was ejected, um, you know, very suddenly, really, after the Argentine defeat in the Falklands War against the UK. Um, and, but that's about as close as an ex- as close a, uh, an analog to what's happening here um, uh, in Iraq. Now, the second reason I say the U.S. Um, uh, there's no the second reason I, I say there's no reason the U.S. can't do this in Iraq is that the U.S. has in fact done it uh, in very difficult circumstances. Uh, Germany and Japan um, uh, come to mind. The other two um, ongoing uh, success stories, whose outcomes are not yet uh, well defined, are Bosnia and Kosovo. Um, now. I want to talk a little about these cases for the next, I don't know, seven minutes. Um, but uh, just by way of preamble, I want to say that the United States uh, has, as I've said, has indeed done this. It has done it quickly, and, and it has done it well. But it has never done it quickly and well. <laughs> That's um, essential to bear in mind. Uh, these... Where, where, where the U.S. has done it well, it's taken uh, quite a long time. Now, the reason I, I, I look at Germany and Japan and, and Bosnia and Kosovo um, uh, is because, um, uh, although Germany had some experience with democracy, uh, particularly in the Weimar uh, period, uh, it was very difficult and very fraught and, and never really won the allegiance of most Germans, I believe. Uh, Japan had, there were some democratic elements to the Meiji Constitution, but uh, Japan was not uh, a democracy. Uh, And in particular in Japan, the military did not uh, uh, report to a civilian chain of command, as as many of you here know. Uh, And neither Bosnia nor Kosovo, I think, could be said to have had uh, a democratic past. So it's not as though... Um, a democratic 
legacy uh, is uh, somehow essential to the creation of uh, democracy. What was essential um, uh, in these cases was a very large number of troops for a very long period of time. Um, and I, I took a look at uh, per capita uh, ratios um, in these uh, instances, just for giggles. Um, in Germany, uh, the U.S. Uh, in the first year of occupation had uh, 100 troops for every 1,000 people. Uh, in year two, that dropped down to 12. Uh, in year five, it was down to three and a half, still quite high. Um, at, in, at the 10-year mark, of course, it was way back up. It was up to 16 per thousand because of the Cold War uh, and the situation uh, with the uh, Soviet Union and tension on the inter-German border. But um, uh, the reason I, I mentioned the 10-year mark, which I won't do in the case of the others for various reasons, is that it also um, uh, – signals uh, the importance or the, uh, the obligation that uh, a democratizing occupying power has for securing the external um, uh, safety uh, and security of, uh, of the occupied state. I mean, once you go in there and you uh, disarm a country uh, or reduce its forces um, uh, significantly, you take on the responsibility of uh, securing it against external threats. In Japan, uh, we had about five per thousand uh, on and off for the first few years. Um, uh, that number tailed off uh, rapidly in 1950, of course, because we moved almost all of our forces except for a single division from Japan to Korea uh, when that war started. In uh, Bosnia and Kosovo, we had uh, a very significant numbers of forces. Uh, we had, um, uh, depending on whether you're talking about Bosnia or Kosovo, uh, 18 to 20 troops per thousand. Um, and that, uh, after the second year in Bosnia, only dropped to 10, which is still a very high number. Uh, the equivalent numbers uh, for Iraq um, over, let's say, a three-year period would be something like 70 to 80,000 at a minimum. And that's uh, – uh, I'm going to come back to that when I close uh, my remarks in a minute or two. Another important factor uh, in all the success stories was uh, maintaining uh, and building a very significant police presence to provide security for the population. Um, that, uh, in the success stories, was done very quickly, was done with large numbers of police, but uh, as importantly, or just as importantly, was combined with um, uh, the rapid reestablishment of a respected judiciary. Uh, in cases where uh, that wasn't done, uh, which actually was true of the first year of Bosnia and, uh, and all of the Haiti uh, uh, experience, there was a real problem because the police could arrest a lot of people and then there was nothing to, to do with them except to deal with them extrajudicially or let them go. Uh, in the success stories, elections happened very quickly. Um, but the elections were local elections. In Germany, there were local elections preceded the first national elections by something like 52 months. Um, 
Japan, the situation was a little different, and in the Q&A we can talk about that. But um, one of the uh, successful things about the Kosovo intervention was that this lesson was absorbed quite well. It hadn't been in Bosnia, where national elections were held quickly, and what was learned was that when elections are held so quickly, uh, they simply confirm the nationalist governments that started the problem to begin with. Per capita assistance has to be extraordinarily high if uh, we're going to succeed. That's uh, another thing uh, that we've learned. Uh, the quality of the input equals the quality of the output. And uh, uh, the economy, even in a place uh, that has uh, a significant natural endowment like Iraq, is not going to get going unless um, it receives substantial aid. Um, Kosovo, you know, Kosovo, which has a much smaller number of people in a much smaller space than Iraq, was getting $11 billion a year, which is one of the reasons it was uh, working out quite well. A couple of concluding thoughts. Um, there are trade-offs involved with uh, doing this oneself. This gets to the issue of whether the United States is going to do whatever it's going to do in Iraq with or without um, uh, multilateral uh, involvement. In Germany, uh, the United States, as, as we all know, did it with the Russians, the French, and, and the British, although the U.S. bore uh, most of the burden. Uh, the transformation was uh, correspondingly uh, clumsy and halting. Um, and, and took more time to accomplish. But when it was accomplished, Germany was firmly embedded in a European context with thick ties to its neighbors, um, uh, particularly, of course, in the West. I'm talking mostly about the Federal Republic. Um, this created a Germany that was much better reconciled to its neighbors and led over the long run to a more secure continent. Japan, uh, where the U.S. Uh, did it uh, itself uh, as a practical matter and did it fairly quickly, um, uh, created uh, a Japan that in a regional context was not uh, as securely embedded. And as a result, Northeast Asia is uh, quite an insecure place nowadays, and, uh, and Japan's neighbors have never quite reconciled themselves uh, to uh, the possibility of resurgence of Japanese power. There's, a, uh, there's another trade-off uh, that we need to think about, which is uh, how quickly one does these things. And how quickly one does these things depends on the extent to which one co-ops existing institutions. In Germany, uh, the United <coughs> States uh, tended not to co-opt existing institutions. Basically, Germany, from an institutional perspective, was completely dismantled and then uh, reconstructed. Uh, this created a Germany uh, which, in my view, was better reconciled to its own past and made a better democracy. Um, uh, in Japan, the story was a little different. We had uh, many fewer troops to deploy, and we had to do it more quickly than, than we were able to do it in Germany. Um, so we used a lot of existing uh, institutions, and as a result, the Japanese uh, uh, were not quite as reconciled uh, to their past um, as they might have 
then. Uh, demilitarization of Japan uh, was done in a much more shallow way than, than denazification was in Germany. Well, the question, of course, is uh, will the U.S. do all this and who will it do it with? Uh, these are really open questions. Uh, uh, the uh, utopian instinct uh, I referred to when this administration, uh, I think, will motivate them uh, to take uh, you know, bold steps in Iraq, but I think the requirements that I've laid out based on historical examples are so stiff the administration will have a hard time uh, meeting them. But that's speculation. Thank you. Our final paper uh, in this session will be by Mike Durant. Thanks very much, Josh. <clears throat> and I'd like to thank you all for being here. Um, I see it as my job as the last uh, member of the panel and uh, one of the organizers to kind of try to tie together everything uh, that everyone said here and uh, highlight, I think, uh, some of the real key problems when talking about this uh, issue of democracy in Iraq. So I'll try to uh, uh, encapsulate what's been said here and add a few of my own, uh, uh, a few of my own observations. Uh, let me start by, um, uh, by discussing Steve Wall's concept of uh, decency versus democracy. Uh, I think that's a, uh, I think that that's a, a very useful distinction when talking about this, uh, this problem that we have, that we have before us. And, uh, it seems to me that uh, it's probably a very good idea to uh, dream about democracy, but uh, at least try to work uh, for decency. Uh, Josh posed this problem at the beginning, what constitutes a failure or what constitutes the success of this operation? Uh, I think we can say that this has been successful. Uh, personally, I don't know if Josh would agree with me, but we can say that this has been successful if the outcome is uh, a, a, decent, uh, a decent Iraq. Now, what are the what are the problems uh, that stand in the way of a uh, of a decent Iraq? Well, first of all, uh, I think uh, all of the members of the, the panels agreed here that um, uh, a fundamental attribute of decency and of democracy is limited government, uh, uh, and the difficulty of achieving uh, limited government in in Iraq is the fundamental problem of people's. Iraqis' sense of insecurity. Uh, this is the, 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 the deepest problem, I think. And that's a, that sense of insecurity comes uh, from many different aspects of the, uh, uh, of the society, but definitely one of the major ones is the, the, uh, uh, the, religious and, uh, uh, the religious and ethnic fragmentation. Now, just a couple of... Uh, a couple of words about that fragmentation. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have anyone here to, to really talk about the Kurds, although uh, Itzik did discuss them, uh, uh, discuss them somewhat. I think it's important to realize uh, with the Kurds that we're talking about a people that's not only not, Ara uh, not Arabic-speaking, uh, but also one that has never, ever been successfully integrated, I think, um, into any of the Middle Eastern countries, but particularly into, uh, into Iraq. There were portions of Kurdistan. Uh, there were portions of Kurdistan that were not um, that were not subject to the law of the state down to the 1970s. 
uh, it, the, in a sense, Kurdistan has always been independent and, and autonomous, uh, Kurd- even in the, the period before the foundation of the, of the state system as we know it today. In the Ottoman period, the Ottoman sultans would uh, slap honors and titles on Kurdish chieftains uh, in order to maintain the fiction that they were appointed by the sultan, but actually their power stemmed from their local power, uh, uh, from their local power base. So uh, these people have a really strong sense of, uh, uh, of independence. Since the late 1970s, they've been subjected to the rule from Baghdad, but that was by, uh, absolutely by brute force, not by any sense of, uh, not by any sense of the Kurds participating in an Iraqi national community. It seems to me that if we want a decent Iraq and we want uh, a limited government, limited government requires some notion of some notion of Iraqi uh, a common identity, so that everyone can agree. It seems that political legitimacy requires uh, a, a, a social, a socio-political identity, shared identity, so that everyone can 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 believe, can trust their government to. Uh, can trust their government to operate within agreed rules of the game. The minute you have the feeling that your government is uh, is run by people who are foreign to you and uh, foreign, alien, and hostile to you, uh, then it creates a dynamic in which each side starts to take steps to protect itself uh, from the other, which ultimately leads to uh, ultimately leads to civil war. Now, in the Kurdish problem, that's particularly difficult because. The Kurds, I don't think, really consider themselves to be Iraqis. The current generation, the current generation that's that's uh, that's in power, may well have reconciled itself to the idea of being Iraqi, uh, because this is the best way to deal with their situation right now. And they may even, after all of the troubled uh, uh, past that they've had, they may even say it's the best thing for us to do in general. But there's no there's no guarantee that the next generation isn't going to look at some kind of autonomy within Iraq as a stepping stone to, uh, as a, as a stepping stone to complete independence. And this is, the, uh, this is a kind of a fundamental problem here with, uh, with creating and then maintaining a, uh, a, a decent form of government. One of the things that we do when we look at Iraq is we say, well, the, the, the state has been oppressing Shi'is, the state has been uh, oppressing Kurds, so we will create a pact that will, um, uh, that will respect these people's communal identities. Um, once we've achieved that, though, we have then enshrined communal identity and political authority and political legitimacy within this federal ethnic structure is going to perpetuate the divisions that, that, uh, that, that are causing the sense of insecurity uh, uh, to begin with. So, the way you get around that is you say, well, let's have a structure. Let's have a structure then that isn't based on, uh, uh, on, on ethnic identity. Let's have a territorial structure, uh, uh, a territorial, uh, uh, territorial um, form of government and institutions that are based on, uh, on, on region rather than ethnicity. Uh, well, the problem with that is when you have a, a majority of the country that are Shi'is, uh, who have been oppressed brutally uh, by a, a Sunni minority uh, and who feel like their day in the sun has come, uh, if you turn around and you create a structure that doesn't respect their identity, uh, or the Kurds for that matter, then the, the, the federal system is seen as completely illegitimate and the product of outsiders whose intention it was to dominate the Shi'is, 
by not allowing them to exercise their their power by virtue of being the uh, uh, by virtue of being the the majority. Uh, uh, this is a this is a conundrum that uh, this is a conundrum that the Iraqis face, and it's a conundrum that the United States faces as well. Uh, this is our fundamental problem in Iraq, and I think the fundamental problem in in the Middle East uh, in, in general. No matter what the United States does, both in Iraq and in the Middle East in general, it is going to do something that some significant portion of Middle Easterners are going to regard as illegitimate. Uh, and that illegitimacy is then going to be uh, a source of hostility, uh, hostility toward, the, uh, toward the United States. So the U.S., as the, as the power that's brokering this new, system, uh, uh, this new system in Iraq, is going to have the burden of, of being held responsible for whatever perceived uh, iniquity results from the uh, uh, from the uh, from the new Iraqi system, and I don't think there's any way to square. This is just a fundamental conundrum. There's no way to square this this circle. I suppose that you know, in a, in a kind of a philosophical sense, the best way to do it is to have a bicameral state in which one 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 part of the country one one, one house is made up of uh, people uh, uh, who, who are elected on the basis of ethnicity and the other on the basis of territoriality. But that will still upset those who, like the the, the Shi'is, who think that our natural place is to be the rulers because we're the majority, or uh, the Sunnis who have. Ruled Iraq, or ruled you know from been 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 in control of Baghdad from Ottoman times down to yesterday, and have a sense that this is their country and they should be running it just by virtue of the fact that they've uh, that they've always run it. Since they're numerically the smallest group, they they have the most to lose here in this new order. All right, now that's uh, that's uh, sort of one conundrum that uh, that that we have here. Um, the the other conundrum which um, uh, which uh, uh, Steve Simon alluded to uh, and didn't discuss in detail, and, and in fact, actually, Itzik alluded to it as well, is the relationship between, uh, uh, between Iraq and its neighbors. The, um, <clears throat> the, as Itzik mentioned, the Sunni domination of Iraq has been uh, accepted and, uh, and uh, I think, uh, supported strongly by all of the Sunni Arab states that, uh, uh, that border Iraq. Uh, now, if we empower the Shi'is, which I think is the, inevitably the case in whatever kind of state that results in, in, in Iraq, uh, this is going to cause uh, a, a significant amount of resentment in the rest of the Arab world, and in particular in neighboring Saudi Arabia, where uh, the dominant ideology of Wahhabism is, uh, um, is, rather at, uh, is rather hostile to Shi'ism in general, and where there's a Shi'i minority sitting on the, uh, in the eastern province, which is where the, uh, where the oil is. Now, I don't think this should be exaggerated. The Sunnis can get along with the Shi'is, but it's certainly going to be noted. When we watch the, the statue go down in, in Baghdad, uh, and watch people you know, hitting Saddam Hussein's head with their shoes and so on. We saw people being liberated from tyranny. Uh, when, when, the, when the people in Riyadh watched this, they saw, uh, they saw Shi'is going wild, and I'm sure it made them very upset. They're not going to talk about it in this terms, but this, is the, this was going to be, the, uh, uh, was going to be their, uh, their perception. Uh, the the uh, problem in Iraq, the problem of the, the ethnic and religious fragmentation um, is particularly acute. I mean, the reason we got, the, there's a reason why somebody of the um, um, psychological uh, makeup of Saddam Hussein ruled Iraq. You know how they say that every country gets the leader it deserves. There's a reason why somebody so cruel and, uh, and barbaric was in control of Iraq. 
you, you, in neighboring Syria, you have kind of ethnic cleavages that are similar to those in Iraq, but the Syrian tyranny is not as repressive as the Iraqi. I think the reason for that is that the identities in Iraq, the, the, the identities of the minority, are, go across state boundaries. So that the, so that the, although the, the Shi'is of Iraq are Arabs, they share Shi'ism with neighboring Iran. The Kurds share their Kurdish identity with Kurds in Iraq and Kurds, uh, uh, and Kurds in Iran. The Sunnis in Baghdad share their Sunni Arab identity with, uh, uh, with all of their neighbors. The way that these identities cross the state boundaries makes the whole, uh, the whole question, it means that the, the internal ethnic divisions and the sense of insecurity that arises from those, uh, uh, from those, uh, uh, from those uh, cleavages is not just a domestic political issue, it's also an issue in international relations. And the relations between Iraq and its neighbors reinforces those domestic cleavages and that sense of, uh, uh, and that sense of insecurity. Now, what does that mean? That means, first of all, as Steve Wall raised the issue, he said, you know, there's this question about, there's a philosophical question, can a democratic order or a, 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 or a decent order be established by outsiders? I mean, in order, for it, in order for it to reach either of these ideals, doesn't it have to be the product of the peoples themselves? Uh, and if our answer to that is yes, then we're in big trouble, because left to their own left to their own the iraqis are not going to establish uh, a, a decent or a, a democratic society i mean left to their left to themselves and their neighbors left to themselves and their neighbors there is going to be brutal civil war intervention by regional powers resulting in either the fragmentation of iraq or the reimposition of some nasty, uh, uh, of some nasty, nasty form of government. You can see it without going through each of the possible cases. You can see it very clearly with the with the Kurdish issue. Uh, the Turkish state, whose concerns are shared, by the way, by neighboring Syria and neighboring Iran, both of whom have uh, uh, significant Kurdish minorities. Nobody ever talks about the Kurdish minority in Syria. I understand. I'm not 100 percent sure about this. I understand that in that the that the Kurds in Syria. Are are uh, are not even given uh, Syrian passports and are not given uh, 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 Syrian citizenship. I'm not sure about that. I was told by this somebody by this about this recently. But we're from the point of view of the Kurds. I'm told that, um, the, that the Turkish general staff has a small book that it keeps, an actual physical book. Uh, that has a list of red lines, what, the, what they call red lines regarding the Kurds in Iraq. Those are, those are uh, sets of circumstances that Turkey under no conditions will, uh, will permit. And there are two that are most significant for us. One is an, an independent Kurdistan in Iraq. That will immediately uh, lead to uh, a Turkish military uh, intervention in northern Iraq. The second one, this is significant, is autonomous Kurdistan with direct control over oil resources. Uh, they, the, the Turks are fearful that 
if the oil resources in the north of, uh, of Iraq are controlled by an autonomous Kurdistan, that will lead to uh, the spread. Uh, the, 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 the autonomous Kurdistan will have resources to use. Basically, will end up conducting its own foreign policy, and it will spread Kurdish nationalism to neighboring Turkey, and the Turks will intervene on the basis of that. If the Turks intervene, then the Iranians will intervene, and the Saudis will intervene in their way, and we're going to have, uh, 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 we're gonna have total chaos. What that means, then, is that for this crucial transition from the tyranny that existed before to whatever new order is going to take place, whether it's, whether it's uh, a decent order or not, the United States is absolutely the crucial ingredient here. Uh, U.S. resolve and uh, uh, U.S. Uh, and U.S. Um, U.S. resolve or lack of it is what's going to determine the the the, uh, the outcome here. Now, uh, let me play off of some things that um, that Steve Simon said and uh, add some of my own observations there. Uh, let me just lay out some of the factors. I think again, kind of conundrums that are going to frame. Uh, the parameters in which U.S. policy uh, plays a role here. Uh, first of all, uh, let me just highlight what Steve said. There seems to be a, uh, a gap between the rhetoric and the resources that Washington is willing to, uh, is willing to uh, uh, devote to this, uh, uh, to this exercise. Um, that gap, if you read uh, Paul Krugman, that gap is a result of the hypocrisy of the Bush administration. Uh, I think it's much deeper than that. Uh, uh, I think that it is a, a profound historical problem that we're living through right now, uh, and that is that the United States has been handed a quasi-imperial role uh, in the world. And uh, as Neil Ferguson pointed out in the New York Times last year, last week, uh, it doesn't see itself as an empire. Uh, our institutions, our very culture, are not really uh, the the uh, maybe it's always the case in history that they that that your your culture and your institutions don't prepare you for the role that you play. I mean, the, this is just the the way it goes. But there's a tremendous there's a tremendous tension here. Uh, we don't want to be. Well, I'll just give you a, Neil Ferguson. You probably read him anyway. Gave you a lot of examples, but I'll give you one that's been particularly bothering me. We did not want to be labeled imperialists when we went into Iraq. And we dropped leaflets that told everybody, don't worry, we're going to help, we're going to give the country to you, and then we're going to get out. Now, if the fundamental problem of achieving a decent society, uh, as Steve Wall pointed out, is this question of trust, being able to trust the government uh, and uh, getting past this fear of one's neighbor and one's own government, then as the crucial transition authority, the United States is a crucial transition authority. When it sends a message the minute it comes in, hey, we're not going to stick around very long, it sends a message to everybody there, don't cooperate with me, don't trust me too much, don't get in bed with me because I'm just going to hang you out to dry, as, I, as, as we did in 1991, basically, when we called on you to, uh, to rise up. Now, on the other hand, I mean, you have to understand the Bush administration's dilemma here. On the other hand, had they dropped leaflets saying, this is going to take years, we're going to stay the course. We're really going to stick to it, and we're going to get deeply entrenched in everything that goes on here. 
you can imagine what the, what the critics of the Bush administration would have said here, and you can imagine what people all across the Arab world would have said about, about, uh, uh, about imperialism. So uh, in order to do the job right, we have to take steps that are going to ensure that it's not done right, uh, uh, I think, uh, which is a really this – is, this goes beyond uh, – you know, this, this, is, this is the historical moment we're in. I think it goes far beyond – uh, any particular administration. Because as I tried to lay out here at the beginning, no matter what you do, you're going to do something wrong, I think. Okay, now, which is part of the reason why, uh, oddly, I think I come at this a little differently than Steve Simon. It's why I like the Bush messianism. Uh, uh, it, it's the thing that I find attractive about it, actually. Uh, because I start from this assumption that no matter what you're going to do, you're going to do something wrong. So I like somebody to get in there and do something, right? Uh, uh, because Because... I thought that the existing, the status quo was absolutely intolerable and worse than what would ever have, that, worse than whatever wrong step would be made to change the status quo. Okay, uh, now, uh, a couple of other issues that are going to affect U.S. policy. There's this problem of us not being an imperial power. This is a, you know, this is a domestic cultural histor uh, historical problem. There are some other issues here as well. There's a kind of a security conundrum in the in the Persian Gulf, uh, which goes like this. It's a kind of an extension of this domestic conundrum in Iraq. In Iraq, if you build a state that is strong enough to contain the vociferous characteristics of, the, of, the, uh, of, of Iraqi society, then you run the risk of building a, a tyrannical state that will be, or not necessarily tyrannical, of, of creating an order that people are going to react against. Uh, uh, because it, because this, the, the central authority is always going to be perceived by somebody as deeply illegitimate and, and, and representing an alien outside, uh, outside force. Similarly, with regard to the regional structure, if you only need to look at how we got involved in Iraq in the first place, the Washington wanted in the, uh, in the 80s and uh, basically in the 80s and early 90s, wanted to create a, a balance of power between uh, between Iran and Iraq, and basically we wanted a balance a, a balance of power against Iran uh, as a result of the, the the Iranian Revolution. So we we did we didn't want the uh, we, we we wanted a balance where these two powers, neither one of which we liked very much, would 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 kind of check each other. But we especially wanted to check uh, uh, Iran. Now the problem with that was that re that meant supporting and Iraq, which was then capable of threatening Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, which, are, are, which we have historical and, 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 economic, and economic ties to. So how do you create a balance between these two big powers in the Gulf without destabilizing the other, the, uh, uh, the other side of the Gulf? That's a conundrum that can't be solved. It, uh, uh, that can't be solved as well, uh, that can't be solved, and it's a conundrum that is going to stay with us regardless of the regime, uh, uh, of the regime in Baghdad. So, if we establish, uh, uh, if we establish a powerful, uh, a, a powerful and stable Iraq, there is still going to be this problem of Iraqi-Saudi relations, uh, also Iraq-Iranian relations, uh, and it's going to keep us deeply involved because we are going to have to play the role of the balancer of last resort uh, uh, to see to it that this uh, that this um, that this security conundrum in the Gulf doesn't lead to war, which will inevitably war in the in the Gulf will inevitably exacerbate those internal cleavages 
uh, internal cleavages in Iraq. So there's a kind of a, a kind of a web of connections here, all of which leads back to the United States remaining involved. Uh, there's no there's no way that for the for the security of the Gulf, the peace of the Gulf, uh, the United States cannot be involved. Then there's this question of the problem of resources and rhetoric, uh, and or the role that history has bequeathed us and our desire. Uh, and, and our desire to play it. One of the possibilities in the current mix, it's impossible to predict, but something I keep hearing from Washington is it's inevitable that we're going to bring the UN in to rule Iraq because we're going to look at this mess and we're going to say we don't want to have you know, total ownership of it. Uh, it's possible that we would do that. It's possible that we would do that. Uh, and there are a lot of people arguing for it. Personally, I've argued against it uh, for two reasons. One is uh, basically for, for, for one reason, and that's that I don't trust the UN. I don't trust in particular those powers who are going to sit on the Security Council uh, 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 and are going to come in and, and help us rule Iraq. Uh, some of them, like the French and the Russians, have a deep interest in checking American power. Uh, and they will, regard, uh, they will regard the enemies of the United States or the, we say, the anti-status quo forces in Iraqi society. Those groups who are those groups who are unhappy with the new order, and there will be groups who are unhappy with the new order. They will regard them as allies against the uh, against the United States. I'm not trying to say that these countries are at war with us, but they want to contain us. They want to limit us. They want to limit our power in Europe, and they want to limit our power in the, uh, in the Middle East. There are plenty of people in the Bush administration who see the world the way I do, and don't want to bring in uh, uh, the UN for that reason. On the other hand, on the other hand. Uh, this question of the gap between rhetoric and resources is going to mean that the people in the Bush administration are going to like the idea of UN money and European money coming in to help uh, uh, to help reconstruct uh, uh, reconstruct Iraq. Uh, and so I, it's impossible to say how the how this is going to all uh, play itself out. But I think that's where we should be. Uh, that's what we should be watching. I, I do want to make a kind of a, a pitch for my own point of view here, as long as I have the podium. I'm sure I've already gone past 15 minutes, but. Beware the claim that multilateralism leads to peace, stability, legitimacy, etc. And remember two things, that a multilateral approach to these security conundrums was the decision in 1991 not to go to Baghdad. We didn't go to Baghdad and topple Saddam Hussein, partly for our own reasons, absolutely, but also partly to keep all of the coalition partners happy. We... We took a half measure, which was sanctions, and we kept it in for 10 years. And we didn't move on the sanctions and change it because we were being respectful of world opinion, in particular French, uh, 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 French and Russian. There are other factors as well, but, but, but our coalition partners, coalition from 1991, we were concerned about their point of view. And we, and we imposed sanctions rather than uh, anything else. Uh, sanctions did miserable things to Iraqi society. Sanctions also was regarded throughout the Arab world as something close to genocide that was killing an enormous number of, uh, uh, of innocent people in Iraq. 
And sanctions was one of those things that Osama bin Laden harped on constantly. Uh, uh, the, the, the Saudi complicity in the, in the U.S. sanctions on Iraq was seen as one of the great uh, crimes of, uh, of Osama bin Laden. So just because we have coalition partners and just because we listen to the Europeans in, in establishing whatever order we're going to establish doesn't mean that order is going to be perceived as legitimate, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to be primarily blamed for it. Just because we got others to go along with us doesn't mean that ultimately the U.S. will be blamed for it. And the U.S. will be blamed for it for good reason. One, with a dominant power. And number two, those who terrorists who like to attack the United States do so not just because they're opposed to the United States, but because they get much greater attention when they attack the, uh, attack the Americans. So there's no way out of that conundrum either. You may well re decide that the lesser of two evils is multilateralism, be my guest, but don't think that by doing that you're going to get out of any of these conundrums they're impossible to get out of. They're the product of, uh, uh, they're the product of history. Now, I'll, I will end, having been so pessimistic, on an optimistic note. The good news here uh, in all of this is that this crucial transition uh, is going to have to be managed, as I said, by the United States. The Iraqi people can't do it. They, they, they can't do it on their own. Um, the United States is not going to engage, however... However wrong it does the job in Iraq, it's not going to engage in drive-by democratization here, uh, like it did in uh, like it did in Afghanistan, where you just go drive-by, shoot, and then keep going. We're, our interests, our interests in the Persian Gulf are too great. Uh, making a total mess of the thing is not is not only unacceptable morally, it's not acceptable politically and economically. So there is a, there is a deep interest, uh, uh, you know, a deep political interest on our part to remain committed on some level. Now, whether that will be the level that will ensure that we'll get a decent society, uh, I, I don't know. And we'll have to watch the interplay, you know, the way we deal with a lot of these conundrums. Uh, but it's... Um, uh, it's going to definitely mean that we're going to stay engaged. We don't have the ability to just pick up uh, and leave. And I think I've gone past my 15 minutes, so I'll stop there. Thank you. I'd like to thank uh, our entire panel um, for, I think, setting uh, an agenda uh, which is uh, uh, just about um, as tough uh, as we could ask for. Um, uh, I suggested in the beginning uh, of my remarks that uh, it, the problems that we were confronting are genuinely hard ones uh, and that the stakes are indeed very high. I think uh, we've begun to get a sense of just, in fact, um, how hard the problems are uh, and how, this, how high the stakes uh, really are, how uh, difficult a thing that democracy is um, uh, intrinsically uh, and uh, how difficult uh, a transition to democracy uh, in the specific uh, Iraqi case will actually be. Uh, what uh, I propose that we do at this point is take um, about a 15-minute break um, uh, for uh, a coffee and uh, refreshments, um, uh, and then we will return, uh, and the uh, members of the panel uh, will uh, respond to questions um, uh, from you. Um, uh, they may ask uh, questions um, of one another. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let us thank them once more, and we'll be back in 15 minutes.
Well, I took a philosophy class. And I, I don't. It's two things I can't do. I can't talk about literature intelligently. You know, I can talk about. Oh, I like that book. I like that character. But I can't talk about it like like literature people do. And I can't talk about philosophy about bodies of ideas. They're the, the level of intelligence that I can't. Uh, they appear. They may not be. <laughs> it's a, no, but it's no. It's it really is a. It's really a good skill. People could begin to settle themselves. Uh, well, what are you going just a minute? Wait some time now in defining. You know, decency. What is a decent government? In fact, like democracy is too high. In fact, can I have a copy of your thing? Is it possible? Sure, I've written on it, but uh, yeah, no. I just, you know what? I want. I want it for lectures to the undergraduates. I want to steal a few phrases. Okay. I don't. uh, Don't don't think I'm going to go publish it. Emailing it to me. Okay. Sure. Or I could send you email the copy. I can give you this. I mean, I don't. Either way. Either way. Whatever you're comfortable. I'll give you this. I forget. So you want me to convince myself that I'm going to give you a It's all right. I'll track you down. Oh, oh, oh. Where, is it? Where, where, is the, where are the suits? Do you see what's going on? So did you say you want me to email you a copy? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's for me, my wife would be. So teach here? Actually, you Have you have you um, do you publish on this? On Iraq. In Iraq. Welcome back uh, to um, our first session. Uh, Before we get going, let me remind uh, everyone that uh, we'll also have two uh, afternoon sessions. Um, uh, The first afternoon session uh, at 1.30 will deal with specifically history um, uh, and experiments with democratization. Uh, And then the second afternoon session at 3.30 deals with structure, uh, with the question of uh, architecture and infrastructure and democracy, um, all uh, aimed, of course, at uh, the question of how does this relate to uh, the world of uh, post-occupation Iraq. Uh, Well, uh, as I suggested uh, at the end of the um, uh, first uh, morning session, I, I think we have, in fact, put onto the table a number of really difficult problems. Uh, uh, democracy is not an easy thing to achieve. Indeed, uh, even decency is not an easy thing to achieve. Uh, and uh, the way to decency, uh, much less democracy, uh, seems to be difficult. Uh, we have problems on the table of identity, um, of uh, ethnic, religious, national, civil identity. We have the uh, question of the relationship between civil society and government. Um, To what extent is there a civil society uh, in Iraq? Uh, To what extent uh, can one uh, be built? How long would it take to build that? What will be its relationship uh, ultimately to uh, a government? Uh, What is, in fact, the role for the United States um, in the transition uh, to the goal of a decent uh, and or democratic
like Iraq. Uh, what kind of uh, length of uh, stay uh, is feasible, is desirable, uh, with what sort of resources? Uh, what is the role for um, a potential multilateral uh, involvement um, by the UN uh, or potentially by um, other uh, international agencies? I think there is, uh, those are just a few of the issues that came out strongly uh, for me. Um, let me just uh, open it up and um, uh, ask uh, you to um, ask questions to the panelists. Uh, if you could, um, in directing questions, indicate whether the questions are, as it were, to the panel as a whole, <laughs> or if you have a question for a particular panelist, um, uh, please uh, make that make that clear. Either 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 way is is fine. Sir. Current uncertainty here. What would you, what do you see as the worst development that could occur? In the in the current uncertainty? You mean? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so what? How do you see? What is the worst uh, uh, scenario or event or development that could uh, occur? I, I think the 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 worst thing that could occur would be would be civil war. That would be the. And do you think that's a uh, What conditions would in general bring about that? Uh, if uh, if the United States were to um, to fail, the, the, I think the, the the first order of priority for Washington right now is to establish um, security uh, on several uh, several different levels. You know, I, I uh, saw uh, an interview with an Iraqi gentleman uh, recently who said that every time they arrest one of Saddam's ministers on that deck of cards, he said, I breathe a little easier. Which, which is interesting because I think that for us sitting here um, watching what's going on in Iraq, we feel like, oh, you know, the really difficult job is done. But if you're, if you're sitting there in Iraq and there, there, isn't, uh, there isn't basic security, first of all, and plus you're coming out of this dark world of, of tyranny, you you fear that maybe it isn't really over yet, uh, and you. F I think people who live in. in I had a. I think about. It, I have a friend who uh, came from the Soviet Union, uh, and he told me where I got. He sent me a a postcard once when he went to Berlin before the wall went down, and he he was he became a Canadian and then he went back on a trip, and he said I had this terrible experience in Berlin. My ears turned red and burned for uh, all the whole time I was there. He said it was a nervous reaction. I couldn't stand being that close to so many Soviet divisions. And it wasn't until I got, got back out that I, that I, uh, that I felt comfortable again. I, don't, I think when, you, uh, when you've been through an experience like that, the, you, the, the kind of fear remains for, for years and years and years. So I would use that as kind of a metaphor for the general situation. There's, the, there's this fear of uncertainty. There's this fear that the old, you know, what people are asking themselves, what new order is the United States going to put together here? And, okay, maybe it's not going to be Saddam, but maybe it's going to be the same old thing and the same old security services and, uh, and so on. And then, there's the, then, then there are all the other uncertainties that, that I mentioned of the, of the ethnic cleavages uh, and, and just cleavages within towns and, and, and so forth. So the first order is to establish authority. The worst possible thing that could ha is, to, is to establish a, some kind of working order 
basic security, uh, and, and then a, 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 a police force that people can trust, a judicial system that they regard as somewhat, uh, uh, you know, somewhat reliable and independent and so forth. Uh, uh, the worst thing that could happen is that we could start quickly pulling out, not really establishing order, and there would be low-level low level violence that could then, once we're out, once we're out, it's going to be hard to go back in, and that low-level violence could then turn into something bigger. There could be external intervention from Turkey or from Iran. So, Do other members of the panel want to speak to this? It seems to that that's a, that's a very relevant question. What's the worst, what's the, what, what's the worst thing? Um, Mr. Uh, I would I just want to underscore what uh, Mike said about the uh, importance. I agree with him as to the worst possible outcome, but the uh, importance of uh, a very large um, uh, continuing American presence in that country. And uh, what what's kind of interesting right now about administration attitudes on that question is that they're a bit schizophrenic. Uh, on the one hand, you have um, uh, those in the administration who uh, think that very few troops will be needed for a very short period of time. And this stems from an image of Iraq that uh, is in uh, the classic mode of, of mirror imaging. So these see Iraq as uh, uh, basically a secular country, technologically oriented, formerly had strong ties to the West, um, and uh, ready, really, once um, freed of its uh, uh, tyrannical uh, Ba'athist uh, um, uh, rulers to uh, join the West. And, and they see Iraq um, in, in this way uh, very much in contrast to the way they see, say, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, a kind of a worthless ally because you know, they're Wahhabi, they're culturally, culturally alien in a way that they don't perceive the Iraqis to be. Um, uh, they're religious uh, in, in terms of their political inspiration, um, and uh, they're essentially unreliable. And now you've got this very kind of like-minded, uh, kind of westernized uh, country that could adapt very rapidly. Now, I said their attitude was schizophrenic. At the same time, there are those in the administration who see I Iraq as um, uh, in this uh, sort of tripartite way, you know, warring communities, ancient hatreds, uh, you know, they kind of see it like Bosnia, only, uh, you know, where they speak um, Arabic. Uh, the only... Um, uh, a U.S. government institution that doesn't, uh, uh, you know, really share this uh, kind of optimistic view about Iraq. I don't know about the State Department, but certainly the military doesn't share that view. And uh, the military actually believes that um, uh, a very long-term and very extensive presence will be necessary, and this has led to a public spat that many of you may have noticed where the Army Chief of Staff, Eric Shinseki, told um, a congressman in testimony that uh, the U.S. would have to maintain hundreds of thousands of troops in Iraq for a number of years, um, a point of view that's supported by historical inference. 
uh, and he was, uh, you know, publicly uh, rebuked uh, by Paul Wolfowitz, as, as many of you know, who was one of those who believes that Iraq is is on the verge of a transformation in any case and, and will not require the long-term presence that, that, in fact, I think will be necessary to avoid the worst outcome that Michael posited. I uh, just want to say something uh, that I, I do concur that uh, we should be uh, concerned about the possibility of um, some form of excessive violence, but I'd like to put a twist on it and say that uh, in the short term, this violence may not necessarily take the form of a civil war between Iraqis, <coughs> between, let's say, Shiites and Sunnis. It can take the form of a very strong anti-U.S. movement. And I think that we need to pay attention to that. Josh, can I add one, answer, one, one more little thing, which is kind of related. Um, uh, when uh, Steve was talking about the technologically, um, technological and uh, educational background, cultural background of Iraq, um, among the people who have been saying that, uh, that Iraq can be democratized and it will be a, have a great demonstration effect on the rest of the, the Arab world, they always do point out to the fact that there's this, this that the Ba'ath, for all of its evils, was secular, promoted women, uh, and, and also that there's a, a powerful resource base <coughs> in, uh, in Iraq for creating, uh, uh, you know, unlike in Afghanistan, you know, you don't have the, you don't have the economic base for creating um, uh, social and political structures that could support uh, a decent or democratic um, system. Uh, I, the one thing I want to say is that, uh, that students in political science who look at oil um, tend to emphasize the uh, the uh, uh, tend to, to emphasize oil as a as fostering uh, authoritarianism rather than rather than democracy. Basically, for the basic reason that oil you can take oil right out of the ground, sell it in the international market, and make a lot of money without having any kind of relationship with your society whatsoever. I mean, you just put a put a fence around the oil fields, uh, and then all that money goes right <coughs> to the elite. And so, and, and indeed, I mean, uh, the, if you look around the Arab world, there is this, uh, there is this dangerous uh, or this kind of troubling pattern where you have in oil-rich countries uh, uh, an elite that, uh, that basically rides roughshod o o over society. It's a different elite in each, each country. In Algeria, Algeria, it's the army. In Saudi Arabia, it's the royal family. In, in Iraq, it was the Ba'ath Party. But, you know, these pictures that we've seen now of $650 million just laying around, who knows how much money there's around like that. This is only possible in a kind of oil-rich economy. So I, I think um, uh, uh, in, order to, in order for that material wealth that Iraq has that the democratizers uh, think will play a good role uh, in, in helping Iraq build a civil society, I think ahead of time some thought ought to be put into, um, into developing mechanisms to see to it that, the, that it doesn't just get used uh, to funnel resources to a mafioso, a mafioso uh, an elite of mafiosi. Um, what, they, what those institutions could be, I don't know. You know, maybe, uh, maybe a board with international oversight that would see to it that it is uh, distributed to parts of the budget, which also has international oversight. Uh, uh, that will be used for schools and roads and, uh, and so forth. I, I think in Alaska they get around that by giving everybody $5 or $50 a year. It goes, it goes right back to the people in tax. That's one of the ideas that's been brooded about, establishing a trust fund and having oil revenues going to a trust fund. Is there any, is there any steps in, in that direction, do you know? 
Well, there are numerous plans floating around for dealing with uh, Iraqi oil revenues that don't perpetuate the rentier structures that um, have so strengthened uh, uh, authoritarian rule uh, in Iraq. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the idea is that, that you want the Iraqi government to get its revenues from taxation, not from taking the oil right out of the ground. Um, and uh, distributing wealth um, to people in a way that uh, obviates the need for a social contract. Uh, what these countries do that that, uh, that Michael described is say, well, look, um, you know, we're just giving you money. There's no taxation, and therefore there's no need for representation. Um, and uh, we're all very comfortable with that, aren't we? Um, and uh, you know, in Iraq, it's called it, and in another place, it's called Demokratiat al hubs which means a democracy of bread. In this case, the bread is in the form of, you know, the oil revenue. Um, and these, these uh, structures are very, very difficult to reverse. Um, and it's, it's not only oil revenue that constitutes uh, the source of this kind of wealth. Egypt has been playing this game for a long time, except instead of oil revenue, it's been, you know, billions of dollars from the United States in the form of, you know, payments uh, to secure uh, Egypt's uh, um, uh, commitment uh, to its peace agreement uh, with with Israel, but either way, there's no social contract. What what we want to have in Iraq is a social contract, and that means that the oil revenue has to go really first to the people, and the government getting its resources by taxing the revenues that are accruing to the to the people of Iraq. And there are a number of mechanisms that one can used to approach that, that end, and, and many are being explored. I don't think any conclusions have been drawn yet, though. In the back, sir. Yeah, this is to the entire panel. There was a lot made in the Times article today about the fact that one central figurehead um, in Iraq, um, the part of the U.S. government in terms of who's, who's leading the effort there. Do you think that that is an, an important aspect of establishing democracy there, and if so, why? Well, I, I think that I read this article that you're referring to. Uh, my own personal opinion is that uh, there aren't enough U.S. forces uh, on the ground. Uh, there isn't a, a real demonstration of, uh, of U.S. power uh, in the ground. I'm not concerned so much in the immediate term about the prospects of a full-fledged democracy. I mean, my concern is to make sure that in the coming months, we won't see um, a form of uncontrollable violence against the United States. So, so the fact that uh, there isn't enough forces on the ground, that uh, there are uh, some serious, uh, apparently, haggling in Washington over who should they be the person on the ground. Uh, from my point of view, as an observer of the Iraqi scene, these, these are not good developments as far as stabilizing the country in the short term. Uh, the issue of democracy, um, uh, again, uh, my point is that uh, in order for real democracy to take root in Iraq, uh, there would have to be processes, long processes, uh, generated within the country. So the presence or lack of presence of, the presence of, of a, a strong you can call him a commissioner, uh, is not necessarily an obstacle to democracy. What is more important is what Iraqis themselves would be doing. Uh, but again, my point is that I think that we need to, to, to actually 
break the future into stages and, and at this point make sure that in the coming months uh, things would stabilize. That's my concern. Others on the panel to speak to this? I, I'll just make a couple of the general observations. The, um, uh, if I can reinforce uh, uh, Itzik's point about uh, violence, about the, the worst-case scenario not necessarily having to be what I described and, and how it could be anti-American violence, um, if you look, go back and you look at uh, Iraq under the British, there was a very disturbing pattern that took place there in the, uh, in the 30s and 40s where uh, uh, a fragmented elite in Baghdad made connections out in the countryside uh, with elements who were not, necess not necessarily connected to it either ethnically or religiously, but who shared, a, who shared a, 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 an opposition to the status quo. Uh, and one group, uh, one, one, you know, a, a, an anti-status quo uh, 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 group in the, in the capital would basically incite an anti-status quo, quo group in the provinces to take anti-British, to, to, to agitate against the British in order to allow that, the group in Baghdad to then say, you see, this situation is totally intolerable. We have to take, uh, we have to take action. So what basically the, the demonstrations against the British uh, uh, became a kind of a proxy for for politics within the uh, within the country. This was one one way of just legitimating the change that the that the group in Baghdad wanted to to take place, change the balance of power in Baghdad. But it was also also a way of uh, attacking the British so that they would respond in such a way that would shift the balance of power among the different Iraqi elements. So it can get very uh, it can get very complex uh, very quickly. And I just say one more thing on the basis of what it's we're saying about the, the the conflict in Washington. It's a sad aspect of this situation that uh, that Washington can't get its house in order. Uh, I mean, it seems like we'll have Kurds and uh, Kurds and Arabs. Even Jews and Arabs, Sunnis and Shi'is, lions and lambs, all lying down with each other before the Defense Department and the State Department can make uh, can make peace with each other, uh, and it, it, that that somebody couldn't have pulled these people together beforehand is uh, is disturbing. My my colleague uh, and Calvin, your ex colleague at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Walter Russell Mead, has written a wonderful book on American foreign policy where he applies a kind of a, a kind of uh, uh, what would you call it. Uh, when you, I can't think. Of, I've lost the word. When you when you invest, you oh, a diversified portfolio. He's applied he's applied a diversified portfolio model to American foreign policy, and he says, you know, when outsiders look at us and they see all of this discord between State Department and and, and and Defense Department, which is permanent part of our foreign policy, he says they see discord and disarray, and and they don't realize that ultimately this work always works out to be the best policy. Now, I'm, I'm character. I'm, it's a caricature of his of his argument. Uh, and somehow it often comes out right for us, but when you look at it in real time, it's very disturbing. And when you when you want to see a stable order place to put in Iraq, it's even more uh, more disturbing. But things don't always work out well. Yeah. And one of the <laughs> one of the key lessons of uh, the U.S. experience in nation building has been that when the U.S. is divided against itself as a nation, it can't build another nation. Can't do it. Haiti is the classic example. Haiti became an, a Republican Democratic. Uh, football, um, and it was fiercely contested on party lines. Every aspect of the American attempt to build uh, a new uh, government and a democracy 
uh, in Haiti. And in the current uh, uh, really polarized environment in Washington, one can see the same thing happening, especially against the background of an election campaign that will be very hard fought. Um, so the divisions, uh, you know, will be replicated on a number of levels in a mutually reinforcing and very adverse way because the um, uh, the institutional and the bureaucratic rivalries over this will be mirrored by political rivalries, and that will doom uh, any effort to to do nation building in Iraq. I think, sir. Uh, I have a question for Stephen Waller, Mr. Natash. Uh, one or the other of you, I think, it was Mr. Natash, had the model of a formula to share power among different ethnic groups. Is that, in your vision, a short-term or a long-term solution? And what's the model here of where we ever see this being successful? Lebanon, uh, Bosnia, Northern Ireland. What what model do we have here? And as a sort of an adjunct question, did the absence of Turkey's involvement, which was anticipated up to weeks before the invasion have a difference, the fact that the Turks are not helping us police northern uh, Iran. Iraq. Yeah, I'll start with the second part of your question. Uh, uh, I, I think that uh, the United States should take measures to, uh, to uh, keep to a minimum the degree of interference on the part of uh, Iraq's neighboring countries. Uh, the United States should uh, continue to pressure Turkey uh, not to interfere military uh, or to try to gain leverage in Iraq by supporting the tiny Turkmen uh, community. The more involved Turkey becomes, the more involved Iran would seek to become uh, by influencing Shiite affairs in the country. And the more involved Iran is, the more involved the Arab states would like to be by claiming to safeguard the interests of the Sunni minority. So so I think that that's, that's number one. Um, uh, I don't have a particularly model, uh, a particularly concrete model, but I do think that the, a, a modified and a wiser um, a Lebanese experience with some, uh, uh, some elements taken from the modern Turkish experience should be brought into play uh, within Iraq. A, my emphasis is uh, on creating a system that is based in the short term uh, on checks and balances, as I said. And part of the checks and balances is to, you can also talk about a system where, for example, you would have a Shiite president, a Sunni prime minister, and a Kurdish speaker of parliament. But, and and they, they their roles should be very clearly defined by the Constitution and endorsed by the Parliament, which is why I emphasize the importance of having a very effective Parliament. Um, in addition, a, there would be other institutions operating, as I said, on the principle of checks and balances. And here, uh, I didn't mention in my talk, but I think that uh, there would have to be some serious thinking about the role of the Iraqi military in the coming years and its relationship with the Iraqi civilian uh, Politicians, it's not quite clear to me right now what is the position of the of the Iraqi army. I mean, we heard that uh, entire divisions were decimated, um, and it's not clear to me whether they were decimated, you know, including their people or not. Uh, uh, but 
But again, it all goes back to the point that there would have to be a greater U.S. presence inside Iraq and a long-term commitment to the rebuilding in order for these things to take place. And again, I, I, my tendency is to see Iraqis as uh, active players, which is why I said that uh, in the long term, and it is in the long term, it would be up to them, you know, and it would be determined by their own actions whether they can move from a confessional system into uh, a democracy, uh, the way we understand it. And as um, we heard in the first presentation, a full democracy, like the democracy, for example, that is being practiced here in the United States, may not be the one that Iraqis would, would like to embrace. And we have to come to terms with it. I'd like to say a point about that. Um, we, we didn't really talk about whether an ideal constitution for Iraq would at some point um, have an element of federalism in it. Um, and given that, uh, I gather there isn't a common Iraqi identity. Right? We were joking beforehand. If there is, it's, it's anti-Zionism is the common identity. Um, if there isn't a common identity, then it, it, it might be that we have to um, think about whether there are ways to have federalism in Iraq that wouldn't just uh, uh, precipitate civil unrest and instability. I mean, in other words, is there a way to give the Kurds some uh, self-governing authority, not something that wouldn't encourage them to secede or encourage a neighboring uh, country to intervene, but would uh, satisfy uh, a desire they might have to govern um, their own affairs. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether that would increase stability or, or increase instability. Maybe, maybe you can tell. I actually have a question for Itzik. <laughs> there's a follow-up to what you said. What are the elements in Turkey that you think might be, uh, might be uh, appropriate for Iraq? The elements in you said there were some so that the, that the the new order in Iraq might uh, yeah, might model itself on Turkey. So if if it's possible to reconstitute the Iraqi uh, military in such a way that um, that one of its functions would be a, to interfere in politics in order to stabilize matters yeah. on those occasions when the civilian system is losing it in a way, is melting down. And it happened like almost, it happened four times in Turkey um, in the uh, 20th century. But what was nice about the Iraqi, about, about the Turkish military, uh, is that whenever it moved in to fix things, it was also capable of, of pulling out and handing the system more or less to the, um, to the civilian politicians. So, if we realize that it won't be possible in the near future to put in place a functioning democracy the way we see it here, the way we understand it in the Western context, we would need to think, you know, as part of a wider context of creating a system of, you know, checks and balances about the relationship between the military and the civilian uh, aspects of the Iraqi polity. But in a situation like that, what? You know, what really then checks and balances the military? Uh, that, you see, that's, that's a good point. <laughs> and, you know, what checks the military in Turkey, the way I understand it, is a commitment to a certain vision of what Turkey is all about. And, and the question is, of course, whether in a new Iraq, Iraqis, or at least the majority of Iraqis, can agree on what constitutes Iraqiness or Iraqism. 
and it seems to me that that's one of the major challenges uh, in, that that is involved in the rebuilding of Iraq. Antoine Picot. Yeah, I have a question somewhat different. Uh, if we assume that Iraq was a state, and we're more in a nation rebuilding building, and if we take, for example, the precedents of Germany or Japan, where some structure, fundamental structures of the society were kept uh, in order to ensure the rebuilding of these countries. Uh, this is a question for the entire panel. What kind of structure do you think we should keep uh, from the uh, past regime uh, uh, that prevailed in Iraq? In other words, I have the impression very often, you know, these nation rebuilding tend to forget how it's important, or so you cannot recreate everything. So you've got to find structures on which, for example, Germany kept its higher education system, kept a lot of things, actually. Uh, there were, of course, drastic change in the Constitution, in the police, and so forth, but there were also massive things that were kept. So what would you consider, you know, the, uh, the structures on which one could begin rebuilding? Can I answer that first? Because I can give a very quick answer. I have no idea. I, uh, perhaps uh, Itzik and, and Steve will uh, will be able to say more. But one of the things that really strikes me as somebody who's supposed to know something about the modern Middle East is how little I know about what's really going on on the on, on the ground in Iraq. I mean, it's it's kind of a black hole to me, and uh, uh, I really don't know. I mean, one of the things I think that. Uh, uh, the U.S. government and the Iraqi elite is going to have to do is study itself. It's, it, the, the U.S. government is going to have to study Iraqi society, and the Iraqi elite, I bet, is going to have to study it too and think uh, and think hard about it. Because I don't know uh, what structures are there that are uh, uh, that are usable. And it's given the nature of the Iraqi system, it's very hard to uh, over the last 30 years. It's very hard to have a, a, a sense of what's going on. Yeah. I, uh, First, I, I'd like to say that I, I don't feel that I have all the information that I would like to, to have about, you know, what, about the outcome of the war as far as the, the former institutions. And uh, I, I said something about, you know, the, the Iraqi army. Uh, I, I think it, that probably the former institutions uh, that relate to secret police, intelligence, uh, all the oppressive-oriented institutions no, I'm not suggesting uh, to keep those. Yeah, <laughs> are gone. No, we, can, we can send them to Argentina like we did after the World War II. My, my sense is that the, we, in, in a new Iraq, like in the case of the former Soviet Union, I won't be surprised if some ex-Bathist will be playing um, a, a leading role in a new Iraq, very much like you know the current leadership in Russia. Um, you know, some of the leading politicians in Russia are ex-KGB uh, members, but it doesn't mean that the old institutions remain in place. So we can see individuals, but um, I, I suspect that there is going to be a, a, at least major restructuring, maybe semantical, uh, maybe more substantial of, of the institutions. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how daunting is, is this task going to be. I mean, I read in the New York Times this week that Iraqi children were going back to school in Baghdad. And one of the first things I asked myself, what history books are they using now? You know? Uh, <laughs> it's probably being in technology and architecture. I was struck, for example, by the 
the relative quality of the infrastructure, which tend to imply, you know, an administration that would have been able to maintain that. So there must be things. And more generally, the concern with, you know, nature rebuilding is also about creating, uh, you know, still a sense of the past and the continuity of the history of the nation, which is as necessary as the threat, perhaps. The, uh, if I can just comment on your question, the, 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 the big problem for any occupier, to use that antique term, is whom to recognize. Who do you recognize? And in Iraq, that's particularly difficult because it was run for so many years, as, as it's, it could describe in great detail, by what is called a shadow state. You had ministries. You had a government. You had officials. You had ministers. But that's not where the power resided. The power resided in informal networks and alliances that um, uh, are going to be opaque, actually, to the occupier when he comes in, especially in this case where the United States in particular knows nothing about what was going on in Iraq for the past 12 years, basically. Uh, nothing. Uh, and uh, this is why the problem, as Itzik said, is going to be so daunting. Sir. Before the war, the intention, at least the main intention of the U.S. government to intervene uh, with Iraq was the purpose of mass destruction. That was the main intention. Although over the time, before the war, during the war, and after the war, that main intention seems to have changed. Now, because of that, we are now discussing the democracy issues rather than international terrorism, existence or non-existence of weapons of mass destruction, and so on. So it seems that the, the this brings several issues. That the, how ready was the uh, United States government, for example, in clearly defining the issue? And if it is not clear, then now we have a very important case in our hand to set up a democracy, set up a nation, and how very, how ready we are if if consider that even the different departments of the government are, don't agree with each other how to do it, uh, since we lost the, the our main intention anyhow. So my question is, how the panel members think about? Um, the democratic government in Iraq will be beneficial to U.S. interests if we, in the first place we don't know how to set that democratic government. In the second place, if we consider our allies during the war were mainly anti-democratic governments such as Qatar, Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, but the, who, the people who are against us were democratic governments such as you know, the European governments and France and so on, which we highly criticize not helping to bring democracy to this country now. So I really like to understand. I mean, really, really, we think that the, our main intention to bring democracy was well established before the war, during the war, and now. We know what we're going to do. If we do, a democratic government is good for the American interests if it is established afterwards. I, 
No, I, 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 will, I will say that, that one of the intentions of the uh, panel was, in a sense, to or, or the, um, the, whole, the whole symposium was to sort of to take the world as we found it, that is, uh, with uh, a war um, having been uh, settled uh, and uh, with uh, an occupation of some period assumed, and then to look forward to uh, a possible positive outcome. Uh, that said, it's fair to ask uh, to what extent um, is lack of clarity in the actual reasons for the war and the justifications for the war um, going to potentially affect the long-term opportunity for um, actually uh, settling um, uh, the uh, constitutional problem, um, the political problem of uh, democratization. So perhaps in that, is, would you accept that as sort of a reframing of the, of, of the question? Because in a sense, our goal was not to return to the question of was this a just war or was this not a just war? That's a legitimate question, but not one that we actually are here to talk about. What I'm trying to understand, if we were clear in our intentions to, do, to go all this effort, does that affect, does that affect our judgment yeah. in trying to set up a company, a country, a legitimate country that should be accepted by the whole democratic nations of the world, not just our allies and so on. And, and, and if we can't do that, will that be, you know, useful to American interests in the long term? Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm actually grappling with this question. I mean, with a, I, I think what you're asking. Are we willing to accept the risk yes. that a new Iraq, if it turned out to be democratic, would be also anti-U.S.? And um, my suspicion is that the top people that took the country to war were not sufficiently considering this uh, uh, risk, but the point was driven to them by the behavior of the Turkish uh, state uh, prior to the war, which basically eliminated the prospects of a northern uh, front in Iraq. So my, my answer is, yes, there's a strong likelihood that the new Iraq would not be a, a staunch a ally of the United States. And as I said, you know, the reconstruction of Iraq involves tough risks, and that's one of them. And if by implication it means that the government would not necessarily be democratic, that's that's probably would be part of the real politic of the people in Washington. Yeah, that's too early. Yeah, I uh, I don't know what it means that uh, that uh, Steve Simon, who's an ex-Clinton national security uh, uh, staffer, uh, left at the, when the, when this question was asked. Uh, the um, uh, I think that. Um, that obviously the the way this has been uh, the way this has come about uh, uh, is going to have an effect. What effect? I'm uh, I'm not sure. What I, what I mean to say is that that uh, uh, I think that there's one component of the Bush administration that is very intent on democratization, and and as, as Steve said, is really believes in it. Uh, and, and there are other components who have come along for strategic reasons. Uh, you can sort of see it within the Defense Department itself. I think Paul Wolfowitz believes in it uh, on some level. Uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, I think, is more uh, thinking more in a kind of strategic balance of power uh, fashion. Um, I'm not sure that um, let, just for the sake of um, just for the sake of a theoretical dis uh, dis discussion, 
I'm not sure that a democratic, uh, anti-American Iraq is a problem for the United States, really. Uh, uh, the reason for that is that I think that the thing that the United States wants most out of the Persian Gulf is stability and uh, uh, stable flow of oil at reasonable prices. Uh, and if, 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 that, if that democratic Iraq is not threatening its neighbors and there's no civil war I I in the country, uh, and ifs. what? Big ifs. Yes, big ifs, yes. Yeah. But if those, but if those, it's a theoretical discussion. If, the, if, that's, if that happens and they're out screaming against America every day, uh, uh, the United States can live with that uh, without, without much of a problem. Uh, if there's, obviously if there's civil war, it's not a democratic Iraq uh, 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 anyway. But um, also, you know, I think the weapons of mass destruction issue um, was a real issue for the, for the administration. I think in terms of making its justification for the war, it played that one up as opposed to a lot of the other strategic reasons that it didn't want to discuss because it didn't feel that the world would buy into those or that it could influence the UN on those uh, on those issues. But a, an, an Iraq, a disarmed Iraq uh, that's not building, trying to build a nuclear weapon and so forth, that's also going to be seen by Washington as a, uh, as a big gain. So I, I, I don't think that, um, that the, the, US, the U.S. can live with a strong man in Iraq who is non-democratic and who provides those things that I just mentioned, and it can live with the, uh, with the democracy in Iraq that, uh, that, that provides those things. David Long. Uh, yeah, I have a question primarily for, for Mike. You use the word drive-by democratization, which is a wonderful phrase, and you suggested you know, we, we couldn't afford to do that here, and I think we can all agree with that. We've seen here in this panel that, uh, I mean, my God, what we really need is a, is a strong commitment. We can stay the course, but... My question is, what evidence is there that we, we're really going to do this? I mean, I see a lot of signs that suggest we are going to cut Iran. I think that's precisely what we're going to try to do. And, and, and you always see evidence of it. For example, we're already pulling troops back. Uh, more are scheduled to be taken out. It's precisely the opposite of what we need. Bush, in his latest speech, talked about free Iraq, not free and democratic Iraq. Democracy was left out, uh, uh, rhetorically, which I think is significant. I, you mentioned oil. I, I think. You're right, and we're certainly going to want to make sure that the, the free flow of oil is guaranteed. And my guess is if we can get that, the hell with the rest of it. What evidence, what evidence do you see that we're, going to, that we're not going to do that? We're going to stay in there and really try to transform this society, building a decent as well as democratic uh, order, uh, you know, guarantee the security, uh, prosperity. Uh, do you see evidence of any Marshall Plan for Iraq, uh, a long-term commitment by U.S. troops that amounting to 50, 100,000 over the, I mean, what, what's the evidence for that? No, the, um, the, the, there's, as I try to, to, to make, as I try to state in my, um, in, in, in my summation, you know, I think that, uh, I think that we can go either way. Uh, I think that the, what, uh, I think there are a lot of people who would like to cut and run, and there's a lot of impulses here from a lot of different directions, culturally, economically, and so forth, to cut, to cut and run. We can't cut and run. Uh, uh, we, 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 we can't cut and run. No, 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 I don't think we can. We, um, we, we can. we can cut and run to a certain extent, but we can't cut and run 100%. And I, I don't mean that in a moral sense. For, for me, I, one of the reasons that I've been for this war 
all along, if I can say that, is that I don't think we can cut and run. And I don't think it's an option. I mean, in the ideal world, if, 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 we could, if we could have the world that I would like to see, I would like to say, let's get out of the Middle East. Let's get out of the Middle East and let's change the way. But to get out of the Middle East means we have to stop caring about oil. Uh, uh, which means we have to remake ourselves. We have to stop living in suburbs. We have to build apartment blocks. We have to get rid of trees. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And we're going to even if we even if we beef up our own domestic supplies of oil, oil being fungible, and the and the Middle East being the the, the part of the world that uh, that produces most oil, we're still going to be concerned about what goes on there. Because if the if the if the supplies of oil are cut off from the Middle East, or somebody hostile to us takes takes them over, they're going to be able to have control over the they're going to have an influence over the global economic. Uh, uh, over the global economy that we're going to find uh, to be detrimental to us. That's why Nobel Peace Laureate Jimmy Carter is the president who issued the Carter Doctrine, which says that the Persian Gulf, the, the, the security in the Persian Gulf is a vital concern to the United States. And that's why Nobel Peace Laureate Jimmy Carter produced the rapid reaction force that turned into CENTCOM. I mean, he's the president who set in motion the creation of a force that we could project into the Persian Gulf. Uh, this every president from from Roosevelt on has considered this part of the world to be absolutely vital to the security of the United States. So we're there now. How we're going to be there is, a, is another question. But we're there, and the only thing that can the only thing that can establish security for the people inside Iraq. And for the Persian, and they can establish a balance of power in the Persian Gulf as a whole is the power of the United States. So we're not going to leave completely. We're not going to leave completely. We might, we might hand power over to a strong man who will take care of what we want to take care of. That's, that's the, that, that's what will happen. But we'll, we'll still have very close relations with them. I guess that's what I meant. I mean, I, I, I agree we're not going to get out entirely, but we might. Uh, lead to the degree that we don't really accomplish any of these grand ideals. Uh, I mean, for example, a transformed uh, Iraq or even a even a de so-called decent society. I think it's quite conceivable that we will shift our, our, our shift our, our our goals much lower than that and and and, and settle for just something like vague stability. Absolutely, and that's it. That's, that's a, it. That is a. That is a possibility. That is a possibility that, that there will be people in the administration who will kind of want that, and there will be others who will fight so against it. This is an election uh, yeah. and there's domestic issues to be contended with now. And sure. All that sort of stuff. It's, a, it's a absolutely a possibility. There's no doubt about it. Richard Kosler. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Rich Kosler is from the U.S. Institute of Peace, ambassador, former ambassador to Bosnia. Uh, I have to tell you, some of these arguments, you could just pull a rock out and put Bosnia in and have the discussion about four or five years ago about the sustainability of the U.S. commitment and um, you know, were we prepared to, to basically stay the course until, until the job was done. And I, sitting here, I was trying to remember, of, of any, short of the Cold War, was there any other similar situation that survived the transition to the administration in terms of, of a political commitment? And I think that's the reality that we're looking at right now of the next two Years, yeah. maybe, uh, and and uh, we're not. That's our problem. We're not really good at sustaining a, a commitment beyond our own political process, and people recognize that. In Bosnia, people actually believe we're going to leave in a year after we got there, and the result was nobody worked. And, and I, I think if the Iraqis have a sense that we're going to be gone, 
It's all the, they, they certainly do in the Middle East. I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why um, that's one of the reasons why you get. We we have this image of Middle Eastern leaders being uh, irrational and extremists, right? And now the the image doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of people like Saddam Hussein, who take who, who take huge risks and, and and take very extreme positions. Now, what we don't seem to notice is that they often don't entail any kind of consequence. So that Abdul Nasser can lose the 1967 war horrendously, but he's still in power. Saddam Hussein lost the war in Kuwait, and while well, we watched it happen, I remember talking to my mother. She said, "I've never seen uh, you know somebody who was more blind to reality." But he knew. I mean, he knew that there were limits to the amount of uh, to, 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 there were limits to how far we were going to go, and that there was always a safe position behind which he could he could hide. And that's, in a sense, this is kind of what Itzik is saying about domestic uh, I- I- Iraqi politics, that taking up a position of opposition to the United States, which looks like it is blindly uncompromising, almost to the point of, of, uh, of irrational, isn't. It's really quite a rational position because it creates, it moves the whole political spectrum in the, you know, in your country or in the region. Uh, it, 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 it cuts out the middle ground. It cuts out the ground on which those people who would want to cooperate with the United States can stand by holding up this principle of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, uh, of, uh, of authenticity, of, of, of Arab or Iraqi authenticity, that, that you, you set the bar so high that nobody who even talks to the United States can, can meet it. So you already have groups in Iraq who are saying, no, we won't even participate in elections. We won't. To participate in elections is to, is to, is to be complicit with the occupying power and, uh, and so on and so forth. But once you do that, then you, you cut out the middle ground, and they're hoping then that the United States will cut and run, and they'll be left, like Saddam Hussein was, in control of their little, uh, you know, of, uh, of their little piece of the pie. It's, it's part of the makeup. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a combination of the way business is done over there and the way uh, uh, the way we do business over here, I'm, I, I, I'm, uh, uh, I seem to be very pessimistic. But let me just, uh, and, and I, I, I admit that there is this possibility for just handing power over a strong man and getting out. But I, w- I was talking to some of the panelists here before about this James Fallows article that was written uh, in the Atlantic Monthly before the um, uh, before the war, where he basically listed everything that could possibly go wrong, and therefore he was against it. Uh, and uh, uh, I thought the article was very intelligent and very interesting. But I was trying to do something a little different here in my talk. All these, there are all these things that could go wrong. Many of them will. Some of them won't. Uh, just like in the war, you know, you saw before the war, people listed all the terrible things that was going to happen. There was going to be a conflagration in the region as a whole. There were going to be refugees. The oil was going to be burnt and so on. And uh, a lot of those things didn't happen. Some of them will. Lot, we will do things wrong. We will make mistakes. The Iraqis will make mistakes. Uh, but I still think what's going to come out of this in the end is going to be better than, uh, uh, than, than what existed. And I think there is the hope of a decent society coming out of this. The, there are a lot of things stacked against it, but I, I still think it is a possibility. Did other panelists want to address this, this, this issue, the sort of Bosnia question or um, the, the cut-and-run issue or I was just wanted to say that the, that the groups are not standing still. In fact, they are moving to fill the void and the power vacuum. And the U.S. cannot afford to continue in a situation where it's not clear who is filling the uh, the void. Dr. Nagelsmann. Uh, I'm a bit depressed, but I wanted to ask a match that question if I could. I was really impressed to listen to the part of the discussion so far. It's 
three questions to Steve and to the, uh, Steve Wall and to, and, and to Michael Duran, I guess, but any of the panelists can answer. I just thought there was a tension between Steve's comments and Michael's, who seemed to be agreeing with him, when Steve said we shouldn't confuse a democracy with nationalism. I would suggest that's a very dubious claim. And this tension came out when Michael Duran said that one thing Iraq might need to be a decent society was some kind of new national identity. I, I think it's very hard to separate democracy from nationalism. It, it would be almost inconceivable to think of a successful democracy that wasn't also, or didn't also have some powerful nationalist movement. And one thing I worry about is if, if people are all agreeing that there is such a thing as liberal imperialism, or that there is such a thing as benign imperialism, um, that you can mess with nationalism and not get burned by it. So I'd just like to ask Steve or, or Michael or any of the panelists to, to reflect on, on that connection. That's a hard. That's a hard question. Um, the, the only point I wanted to make was, I think it's a mistake to think that uh, it's necessarily undemocratic if, uh, say, the United States uh, really uh, plays a huge role in establishing uh, the, the new constitution. What matters is that. Uh, what gets established is uh, seen to be legitimate by the people who have to live under it. That's, you know, that's a difficult thing to do. But uh, I think it's a mistake to say, look, this is really something the Iraqis have to do for themselves in order for it to be democratic. And I think if we think like that, we're going to we're going to make mistakes. Like it's going to lead us to to not exert our will as much as we should. Um, but uh, you might be right that uh, we can only get a stable democratic society if there's a common national identity, and that's what's lacking now in Iraq. So um, uh, I might agree with you on that point. We have to uh, end this session at noon because at least one of our members uh, needs to be elsewhere. I'd like to uh, perhaps just spin off of uh, Duncan Ivinson's question and just pose to all of the uh, panelists the uh, question that now seems to be in the air. Is there such a thing as, or can we imagine that there might be such a thing as, an Iraqi national identity? such that it would be the basis for an Iraqi political identity and a, a, Iraq, a set of Iraqi political institutions um, that might have the kind of potential long-term sustainability uh, even in the face of the um, uh, undoubtedly powerful ethnic um, and uh, regional identities that we have discussed. Uh, uh, is there, um, uh, at least are there within Iraq, the resources um, for an Iraqi national identity? Yes, there, among um, the Arabs, as I said, constitute 75% of the population. Um, I think that there is a sense of Iraqism that is based on the on the values and the heritage of a Iraqi society which is a largely tribal. Um, now, um, and it's evident also, by the way, by the large amount of uh, intermarriages between Sunnis and Shiites uh, in Iraq. Uh, and the question is whether, A, this can be translated into a concrete national identity that, in the first place, uh, unify in a political way Sunnis and Shiites, and then if it can be uh, broadened to also appeal 
to the non-Arab uh, elements in Iraq. But again, this is a long, it, you know, the, the elements exist, but they have to be modified, they have to be elaborated, and that's also part of the daunting task of rebuilding Iraq that would be left to Iraqi intellectuals. Um, there's an excellent group of intellectuals that uh, has uh, been very active uh, before the war, but part of the problem was, at least from my point of view, that um, I don't think that um, Iraqi intellectuals operating in the United States were looking sufficiently into solutions from within their own country as to what might be a, the, uh, this Iraqiness that can hold Iraqis together. And, uh, and I, I think that that would be one of the challenges, one of the first things that they have to, to take a hard look at. Uh, but again, it's not something that is going to ho happen overnight, you know. There is an Iraqi identity. It's fragile. Um, the fact that uh, the Shia uh, didn't go over to Iran in the Iran-Iraq war, I mean, can be chalked up to, uh, uh, you know, Arab-Persian animosity that transcended uh, uh, religious identity, or it could be chalked up to the fact that they thought of themselves as Iraqis and uh, wanted to uh, wanted to defend their country. Uh, it was probably a mixture of, of both, but the material I think is is there. But as Zitzik said, it needs to be elaborated and reinforced in positive ways. And we ways. need to make the distinction that even if there is going to be one, it may not necessarily support democracy. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I agree with what, the, what, what they both said. Uh, there will be, however, um, uh, the, with, with two caveats. One is that there are going to be, and we can already see them uh, among the Shi'is, there are going to be Shi'i Shi chauvinistic elements who are going to, uh, who are going to argue their case on the basis of, uh, uh, of Shi'i Shi identity. So there is, there is the material there. Uh, to build an Iraqi identity, and Iraqi identity undoubtedly exists, but there will be those who will be playing the the, the particularistic cards uh, in the political arena uh, for for short term uh, for short term gain, uh, and they're going to be particularly um, they're going to be particularly difficult to deal with in the short term uh, because everything is so fluid and because they appear to be already organized in uh, uh, in some way. Whereas the larger Iraqi identity will uh, will be a kind of a, a force for the long term once there's stability, once there's an once there is a a, a, a thriving economy, uh, and so forth. The neither of the the two mentioned the Kurds, however, which are a, a, a which are a wild card uh, in this. I my my gut feeling is, and I don't know if you two agree with me, that the Iraqi identity among the Kurds is weak. Uh, and the fact that the Kurds have had their own independent governments uh, for the last uh, for the last decade has weakened it even uh, has weakened it even more. Um, now, uh, the geopolitics of the region means that if wisdom prevails among the, the Iraqi Kurdish leadership, they will buy into the idea of an Iraq. And Itzik mentioned the idea of. Uh, uh, of a set of principles that uh, uh, an Iraqi government would have to adopt and would have to become part of the Iraqi educational system. Uh, 
principles about uh, about the territorial integrity, about the the, the nature of power sharing uh, between the different um, uh, between the different groups, uh, and, and so forth. Those would have to be explicitly in the Constitution and in the educational system, uh, and so forth. But it, at some level, it's too. It's also going to it's also going to be. Um, it, it's also going to require wisdom on the part of the uh, uh, of the leadership. And there will always be the temptation among the Kurds, and I think probably among the, the Shiites as well, to uh, uh, to claim that the existing order is uh, is hostile to them as ethnic groups, and that it should be revised so as to uh, uh, so as to reflect the rightful order in the world. Well, uh, I think we promised at the beginning that it would not be an easy uh, solution. On the other hand, if we had solved the problem this morning, uh, we wouldn't have a reason for an afternoon session. Um, uh, we do have uh, afternoon sessions. I'm sorry for those of you who had their hands up uh, that we can't uh, continue the discussion at this moment, but I do urge you and invite you to uh, return at 1.30 um, uh, when we'll uh, explicitly confront the question of history um, and uh, the uh, experiments in democratization and their uh, the direct relevance uh, for the Iraqi uh, situation. Um, uh, we'll uh, once again then gather here at 1.30, uh, but uh, before that, let me uh, just once again thank the panel members uh, for their <laughs>